Director's Club with Brad and Al. Uh, here over at the Director's Club, we uh, use a single episode to take a look at the entire body of work of a particular director. We go and look over his like established classics, his under uh, underground gems, or some real personal work that may have fallen li- right under the radar. Over the course of 120 plus episodes now, the Director's Club has managed to look at all sorts of different kinds of directors from cult favorites to just these legendary um, titans of cinema. And we found that like it's could be really cool to just see what kind of themes and connections that to other films can come up when you go and take a look at a director's like entire output. And so come on and join us out for the film journey. Uh, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. Hey, Al. It looks like we have uh, hit our milestone with our second episode. Yeah, you know, we just might turn out to double our output. Indeed. And uh, we'll see if we can uh, double it again. And we'll uh, hopefully uh, you'll all enjoy uh, what we have to say about these directors. And we're looking forward to your input, suggestions, sarcastic comments, or anything else where you could email us at a Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe uh, to the Directors Club in iTunes. And if you don't like what you hear, you can subscribe to us twice <laughs> using two separate accounts. That we'll really, really hate it when you do it that. <laughs> um, uh, the Directors Club is part of a constellation of uh, film and uh, pop culture uh, podcasting known as the Now Playing Network. Um, uh, Rector's Club used to be run by, um, uh, Jim Lachowski, who, uh, his, uh, he can be found on the now uh, playing network under, um, Popcorn Supper, where he and Patrick go and like, can talk about all things cinema and non-cinema. Uh, it's a brand new podcast and we'd, uh, think it'd be cool if you were able to go and check that out. And we also welcome a, another new podcast called Pure Cinema, uh, with, um, uh, with Eldrick Kane and Brian Sauer. Um, and uh, finally, we'd like to give a little bit of a shout out over at the Now Play Network uh, to uh, Jason Petrovsky for his uh, generous contribution. Hey, uh, thanks so much, Jason. So who are we going to be uh, talking about today? Well, since we our last podcast was dealing with zombies and apocalyptic trips to the sun, we uh, comedy seems to be the nice the the topic of the day. I could work with that, or yeah. or maybe the topic <laughs> du jour, because we're going to be uh, uh, discussing today about uh, the work of um, French filmmaker Jacques Tati, um, uh, one of like kind of the most uh, most renowned and uh, uh, film comedians um, uh, out in history, known for like. For while he had a very small body of work, it left a very, very significant impact and kind of follow, kind of was probably one of the um, best successors of the classic style of physical comedy that was uh, uh, came from like Ch- Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton out from the uh, uh, silent film days. Right, and he did it all in just uh, six films, which we'll uh, talk about in detail a little uh, later on. Yes. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing for kings, nothing for crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Oh, situations, new complications. Nothing for 
be cool to just see like what is like kind of like our favorite uh comedies and comic kind of films like uh for me i'm really really enjoy absurdism anything from like uh anything from like that was lampoonish saturday night liveish uh simpsonish um bojack horsemanish stuff like that would be uh, is uh, i i'm just like the crazier the better <laughs> like um like when i was um like i was a huge fan of the um pink panther ty- uh, style of films and the and the old school parodies by the Zucker, the Zucker brothers with uh, John, uh with um abrams uh, your airplanes and naked guns and in fact like my, I think my favorite ever gag literally came from, uh, came from a Pink Panther week. But before we even get to that, like, what's, Brad, where, where do you come from on the comedic scale? Well, um, probably a very similar place. You know, we're, uh, we're both of the same generation. And the, the first, uh, pure comedy that I remember absolutely loving is Airplane. And, uh, seeing that as a kid, uh, really, just uh it, it's pacing the the non-stop gags that it does um and you know even though not knowing it at, at the time looking back on it we could see you know uh how original it was it's uh it didn't even you know i'd seen that before uh seeing any of the films it was uh it was doing uh parodies of so uh i didn't know all these serious actors were doing uh, a funny movie for the first time but uh you know, it, uh, it, it surely worked and don't call me Shirley. Right. <laughs> it's, it, um, it, uh, it, it is, uh, right. It is, right. That kind of, that kind of comedy is just, um, uh, it's something that I really, just something that I like really appreciate. It's, it's something, something that like, something that like Ebert said about comedy. I think I really responded to. And, and Tati kind of works on that angle is that Ebert, Ebert said with regards to Dr. Strangelove, he said, like, it's not funny uh, because it's people wearing funny hats. It's funny. It's because of people wearing funny hats who don't realize that their hats are funny. <laughs> so, so guys, the characters in airplane who are just playing completely straight, no matter how nonsensical it is, that, those go a long way. Right. And that, uh, another one of my favorites is, uh, early Bill Murray, uh, and the entire Saturday Night Live, uh, alumni gang. Uh, so, you know, Animal House, the Blues Brothers, Stripes, Ghostbusters. Those were all huge for me, but probably if I were to say what do I think are the best comedies, the funniest movies of all time, I gotta go Mel Brooks. He he is my guy. The uh I, I think that uh Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein are beyond masterpieces. And the producers, his first movie has the biggest laugh. I'd ever experienced. I was lucky enough to see it in college, uh, in a theater for the first time. And when they went into the musical number at the end of the film, you know, people talk about, um, falling out of your seat. People talk about, uh, doubling over in laughter. And that was not a metaphor. That was literally happening. <laughs> it's, um, uh, comedy to me, I'm sure, I'm sure everyone when they're younger, they get to start on comedies from cartoons and whatnot. And, and I was a fan when I was younger of the, of the Warner Brothers. So that's probably where, uh, that's probably where a lot of the absurdity, uh, appreciation comes from. And, and it also though, like, it, comedy is like the first kind of film thing for me where, 
it was the feeling of the film would overlap in on itself in the sense that like when you get a really good comic thing going with airplane or naked gun you're laughing so hard you actually realize you're missing a whole bunch of jokes so you got to watch it again so you've got yeah. to yes yes exactly but uh, but just the idea that like when you that in the middle of your laughter that you know that there's like more to offer is a is a really uh, really cool thing to have <laughs> Exactly. And I think uh, this discussion of comedy, I'm glad we're doing uh, Tati and, and talking about comedy early on because it fits into something that I, I, I know we agree on, which is uh, that, you know, we don't put hierarchies on genres and types of movies and say, and, you know, like, uh, you know, the Academy Awards, they have their... Uh, you know, Academy worthy movies. And if it's a, a genre piece, a comedy, a horror, or whatnot, it's considered lesser somehow. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, people, uh, sometimes like to say, well, you know, it's just about, you know, art films. And, you know, we love art films, but we also love, uh, uh silly comedies and everything in between. And I think the whole idea of, you know, highbrow versus lowbrow just needs to go out the window because it's just like the how good is the film? It doesn't matter what kind of film it is, right? And it and right and and you know you can evaluate films on objective levels of quality, but you also can evaluate films on on how on what they end up like giving you. Like I'm, I my if my uh, I love films from a kind of spectrum that like uh, can can be fairly appalling at times like one of my favorite one of my favorite hilarious moments of of all time comes from a king kong ripoff movie called a asterisk p asterisk e um uh where the you can clearly see the seams of the um gorilla outfit and when the gorilla outfit is is with uh, uh portrayed among people it's clearly two telephone poles that have been painted black and they put rubber feet on the bottom of them but there is a moment at the end where the uh, ape is being pursued by tanks that are firing upon him as usual for these kinds of films. However, the ape gets really angry, which is also very natural, but what's unnatural is that the ape then proceeds to give the tanks the finger. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you take a look at that and try and fit that in your own head, and it's just like, I that got me out on the floor. <laughs> and, um, uh, like, and my favorite, like, my favorite comic bit uh, of all time uh, comes from the um, the Pink Panther Strikes Again, uh, where Peter Sellers is uh, as Clouseau has wandered around into the uh, into an exercise room where he sees some parallel bars, and he jumps on the parallel bars and goes, "Ah, I remember this from the gymnasium." And he starts <laughs> swinging back and forth, and and he's actually looks like he's pretty good to it. And you have a shot of him from behind as he's swinging on the parallel bars, and then goes, ah, yes, yes, it's it's all coming back to me now. And he dismounts, and then the camera pans to the right to show he descends down two flights of stairs, and you just hear a blood-curdling scream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and another uh, point of reference for me is uh, the Monty Python gang, and uh, even more than their own movies, uh, Fish Called Wanda. I think was was just seminal, and John Cleese in that movie. Uh, I mean, not all four of them were great, but uh, John Cleese has a particular scene where uh, he's doing some double takes uh, uh, as all kinds of action is happening uh, around the house, um, and then getting to see the old screwball comedies and see you know Cary Grant 
do the same kind of material in, in, in movies like Arsenic and Old Lace and the Philadelphia story, uh, you know, helps kind of connect uh, different dots of, uh, of films and then finding out, you know, is the icing on the cake that uh, John Cleese's character's name in A Fish Called Wanda is Archie Leach and Cary Grant's real name is Archie Leach. <laughs> wow, very, yes. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a great call of a great, great, great comedy. Like, which, um, I don't know what happened with Kevin Klein, but he nailed it with Otto. Otto is just such a wonderful character and, um, and features actually one of my favorite lines in verbal comedy. I'm, I guess I'm more of like a, a more along the lines of a physical or physical kind of, um, I like physical comedy a little more than actual wordplay. Like when you were saying you were thinking of favorites, I was so sure it's going to be Romer. <laughs> but um, uh, as, as a comedy, huh? yeah, yeah. Well, sure, the human comedy, right? <laughs> but um, uh, but like, but I do think Otto says it best when um, when John when Archie Leach accuses him of being a Bulgarian and says, "You're the Bulgarian, you fuck." <laughs> <laughs> now I, I do have a question for you about that yes. though. Like, like I really like absurdity, but what, but. It can, of course, can go too far. So what do you think about the kind of films that are called, quote-unquote, stoner comedies? Um, generally, not much. Uh, you know, Cheech and Chong, Up in Smoke, that's probably their best movie and probably like the uh, uh, ultimate stoner comedy. And I there were a few laughs in it, but uh, it wasn't one of my favorites. But now that I'm thinking a little more about your question, I'm realizing how much I love The Big Lebowski. Mm. And and that would also fall fall into that category. Yeah. So um, you know, Shomer Shabbos, that's funny stuff. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right, right, right. And like and um and 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 yeah, the the Coens are a real fun group on there. They're they're a group they're a bunch of directors who split things in a very interesting way between comic us uh, um uh, outright comic stuff and then dramas, but there's mixtures that blend in from one to the other right and then you have a weird situation with stanley kubrick where you know he only touches comedy once with dr strangelove and hits it out of the park as if he were doing nothing but comedies that entire time mm -hmm. right 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 although lolita is lolita has its moments it has its moments peter sellers uh who, who is generally great uh, is also great in that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it like it gets you like thinking on like um how how it like it can almost all depend on perspective, right? How Doctor Strangelove was based on a on a story that was also made into a film called Failsafe, but Failsafe took the scenario completely seriously, and Strangelove by literally pushing it just a little more made it just absolutely hilarious on one of some of the darkest subjects imaginable. Right, right. Yeah, and um and to just give a like a kind of a modern recommendation of Strange Love is one of the films that kind of rocked that rocked me real lately was a film called Four Lions. It's a British film that came out um uh seven or eight years ago with which is regards about four incredibly incompetent madcap loudmouth boobs. Except those four boobs are terrorists and they're Wacky scheme is to blow up, uh, is to, to blow up during a, a, a marathon. Now, obviously, the subject matter is hor is horrifically relevant, but with regards to, with regards to that subject, they, I feel they managed to go push it far enough so that it actually becomes not just hilarious, but makes you incredibly aware of the situation, mm -hmm. which, to my mind, like, to my mind, it goes and, like, points out how, like, how amazing Dr. Strangelove came in. 
like Doctor when Doctor Strangelove came in, that kind of um uh, those those kind of fears of nuclear annihilation were way more on the minds of people back then. Right, right. And yet, so mm-hmm. so the ability of Kubrick to mine that for gold is just very just all the more remarkable. And Four Lines helps us appreciate that in contemporary times. And I would pick as a more recent example uh, in the same vein, uh, another wonderful British film called In the Loop, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, looks at uh, the British government's uh, take on um, uh, an unnamed war that may or may not be fought. But we get to see the mechanisms behind the scenes in uh, in kind of a uh, West Wing kind of way uh, between American and uh, British uh, politicians and and military folks but it's done in this absolutely hilarious fashion uh where every where just profanity especially from one character is just used in such a creative way and you know it gets its message through it talks about how you know kind of the banality of evil how you, you know you could uh back your way into war accidentally but it also just does not skimp on the laughs at all yeah yeah and and that also shows like you're you're so right it shows how you can go and use like even like the most harsh even the most harshest subjects can be of all things clubbed into comedy through vulgarity you know that's a that's a neat trick right but you know we've we've been watching comedy take on the big issues uh throughout film history and if you go back to Charlie Chaplin and the Great Dictator, uh, he, uh, you know, he took on Hitler before uh, just about anybody else would. And uh, after that, uh, Ernst Lubitsch's "To Be or Not to Be" uh, did the, did the same thing. Yeah. Chaplin, in particular, to kind of gear us back to physical comedy, um, he. Literally so in modern problems. <laughs> right, in modern times. Modern yeah. times, right? Right, right. <laughs> uh, modern times, which I think uh, there are going to be some echoes of in uh, in Tati's work. But, uh, yeah, he, he took on every every contemporary issue uh, in, in that film uh, through, without the use of language, you know, through pure slapstick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look back on those films to just see how just how expressive they can be and how little dialogue is um uh, is necessary for that. But but then again, that's that's just me talking. That's the kind of I I do kind of appreciate the way that uh, that comedy can do that. <laughs> right, and and then you get into the sound era, and as many things happened, uh, comedy had, changed, had to change a lot. It became much more verbal. So now you have, even even though the physical element remained with Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers, you still had this uh, big focus on uh, on the verbal and comedy and, and witty lines and people like uh, Groucho Marx and W.C. Fields and uh, Abbott and Costello and all these people with their, their line deliveries. Yeah. Until we get to France, and somebody decided to bring back that old silent spirit. And that person was somehow not um, uh, <laughs> it, it was um, not Jean Renoir. <laughs> I was, um, no, it actually, like, yes, in 1940, like, right, Brad, in 1949, a, um, a film was, uh, came out called Jour La Fête.
a carnival is literally coming into town, complete with like a complete with a carousel that there that is um whose horses are being uh, uh dragged behind them, and uh, as the town goes and coll- uh, collects in the center square to go and um uh get this uh get this carnival set up, uh, they need a leader, and who better than the <laughs> local postal worker who everyone in town is is uh, kind of a a fan albeit maybe a begrudging one <laughs> and the um the po- the po- the bike riding postal working maniac in question is uh, named Francois played by Jacques Tati and uh, directed by Tati in his first uh, feature film right and and I think it's a great one uh, it it almost uh, surprises me uh, how much better I, I like this than even some of his more uh, acclaimed works. I think it might be because um, a lot of the more creative elements would come in more slowly. It might be just his purely funniest work uh, on a pure slapstick level. Uh, and and some more thoughtful stuff, too. You, you really see him already experimenting my favorite uh early scene in the film as you mentioned basically with the carnival coming to town you have uh, all these carnies coming to town yeah and there's they're setting up and one of the things they set up is a uh a, a, a film projector uh, in a tent which uh you know at the time would have been in a small french town like this would have been a big deal quite this a novelty a, right this is a festival that uh seems to happen once a year and is and is something that the entire town just gets really excited for and they're setting up this film uh uh, this the, the, this film showing and the, and they're going to show a western and they uh, you hear you don't see you hear some romantic dialogue uh, coming uh, coming from the film. What you see though is one of the carnies flirting with uh, one of the local uh, townswomen and they do so silently and you hear the romantic dialogue from the film and then you see them. Using their uh, j- just just physicality to express what the film uh, romantic dialogue is saying, and then when the film ends, they have to stop too because <laughs> they no they no longer have anything to say. The the, the, what, the right mm-hmm. l- l- less yeah. small illusion right. <laughs> um yeah it, it yeah that's your yeah that's right. Tati shows us a real fun level of of experimentation of um. Of experimentation and in, in uh, Legere de Fête, as like his, as his, uh, as his postal worker character is, um, uh, is is uh, is he's very very enthusiastic towards taking charge and uh, and he's kind of like the most go getter in his kind of community, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, but uh, some of his efforts are some of his efforts are are more successful than others, but he finds some surprising ways to make it work. Like there's a there's a super fun sequence where he uh, he. Uh, Needs to get somewhere, and he um and while sorting some mail, he decides the best way to do that is by hanging on the back of a truck and sorting in the mail on the flatbed as the truck is as the truck is riding around, treating making it an impromptu desk. Now the reason he has to become in his mind uh, much more of a go getter is because at that uh, same uh, film projection, they've been showing uh, documentaries about uh, American uh, postal workers who apparently use planes and all kinds of uh, 
modern day uh, delivery techniques that uh, would be unknown in r- rural France. Right. So he 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 sees this and is like, well. I should be able to do that, and then, then, then the, the both the, the then he's being encouraged by the townspeople and the and the carnies, especially yeah. to do it American style. Yes, but that footage is <laughs> that footage that he sees is especially wonderfully done mm-hmm. because it is it is so vastly over the top. You you couldn't you could uh, you could not put like eight. Uh, eight intros for MacGyver episodes together to show mm-hmm. how action-packed these American postmen are, like leaping out of airplanes, like diving into chimneys, uh, like uh, uh, like bouncing around on snow-covered <laughs> snow-covered uh, mountain caps just to deliver the mail. Right, and, and, and the historical perspective there is that you know this is uh, being filmed in the late forties, uh, post World War Two, and f- France had to. Uh, come to terms with kind of the, the, the new world order at the time, which, you know, was, uh, American dominance in, uh, in Western Europe and kind of this, the, 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 what, uh, was viewed as the American work ethic, where in France there might be a more, at least, at least, you know, according to the stereotype, and I think according to what the film is presenting, a more leisurely pace. Yeah, yeah. What do the, what do the French think they're doing with this having a laissez-faire attitude? Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's almost like there are things to do other than work. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but and, and like I think even then, it's a, at the start, it's a it's such an interesting way of like of looking that of how how Francois appreciates the american levels of rampant enthusiasm and dedication towards the job of the the job of the postal service you know like it's it's kind of a refreshing thing to like when when now like now in the culture like the french are thought of to like hold americans in dis- between in some measure between disdain and contempt uh to like have the main character go oh wow we should we should be more like that Right. And America does represent modernization in this context. And we're going to see as we go throughout Tati's films that the, uh, uh, the, the conflict between tradition and modernization is going to be a theme that's come back to again and again and again. And in fact, this was the second time, uh, in, in Jure de Fête that this came up because, uh, Jacques Tati's first directorial effort, uh, was a short film called School for Postman, and it also stars Francois, and it's basically a uh, a short version of the second half of the film. Every gag in the short film is eventually transposed uh, into, into the feature-length film, so it was uh, something he was working on over, over a period. Oh, okay. Hmm. And it makes me wonder, like, what, what, what got him to, what do you think that he added most by making it, like, into a feature film? Like, does look at the townsfolk? Exactly, because what the film does is really sets up the town as this wonderfully old-fashioned place, uh, a car shows up, and that's looked at very strangely like you know there this is the 40s there were cars but in this small french town they're kind of like you know what we've we've got our uh horses you know we've we've got we we, we've got our ways so this car is not necessarily well yes there's a very nice scene (laughs) there is a very nice scene though where he's where the francois and his bike stops the car and he just taps the bumper uh doing the hey i'm walking here sequence from uh midnight cowboy uh, decades (laughs) earlier (laughs) And, and the film also has a love of bicycles uh very uh, much francois enthusiasm in doing his deliveries and the physical comedy that ensues from the uh the bicycle stunts are uh are pretty fun yes oh my yes there's one there's one in particular where i 
I nearly applauded in the sheer level of dedication that it requires to, that it required to do. Like, uh, sometimes when you see, like, a comedy involving a physical stunt, like, whether it's a Jackie Chan or, or Charlie Chaplin, it's an amazing stunt, and, but you can see that they planned it, that they was, like, very well choreographed. This is just a guy like, I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, yeah, and, 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 uh, Francois is kind of like a very much of a kind of a go for it, go for it person because he doesn't, he really, he, he does definitely want to make sure all of his mail is delivered, even if it takes him the middle of the night to do so. But he, it's not gonna keep him from getting a stiff drink though. Right. And, and he's kind of a, a man about town and, uh, friendly, uh, chatty guy, which is very unusual for what people generally think of with Jacques Detty, which is his more famous character who we'll talk about later but the interesting thing about francois is how unlike uh mr hulo he is uh francois does talk up a storm is a bit arrogant uh but but in a, in a good-natured way and generally uh liked by the townspeople but uh, but also uh, a, a figure of fun especially uh from the carnies mm-hmm. he is oh uh, yes yes definitely like he is a guy who wants to be more involved, and he's like, and he wants to be a participant. Participant, and uh, as soon uh, they're trying to set up a, a really big uh, flagpole, mm-hmm. and it is, um, uh, and he ends up leading it to the extent that <laughs> uh, the culmination of a sequence where you literally see the um, the uh, off in the distance the this pole like bouncing around like a ship in a hurricane, and it culminates in him actually holding the darn thing himself. <laughs> right. Right. And the in the French flag is very prominently featured uh, throughout, which uh, I don't think is is an accident, especially going in with the themes of uh, the traditional French countryside versus uh, the the American way modernization. Well, yeah, no, and you were talking about how like how he's how he's was trying some innovation, like the um the Criterion one was really interesting because it actually has two different versions, one of which is that like they're in color. And through a like a kind of a, a new method at the time, and another is in black and white. And I think he even filmed like by, he filmed the, by doing color and black and white simultaneously. Yeah, there's there's a third version, which is actually the first one I I, I saw when I watched this years ago, where uh, just individual objects are in color. So the film is in black and white, but the French flag is in color, or a balloon is in color. Uh, so it, that had an interesting effect of emphasizing particular uh, objects in the film. We, uh, the, if you look at the actual color film that's available on the, on the Criterion collection, you might come to the same conclusion we did, which is that it's actually a better, we're better off in black and white with this film. It would have been the first color film, uh, in France, uh, had, had it gone through as expected, but the, the technology was just not there and the color, color looks very washed out and, and not really good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's nice to see, it's in, nice to see that, like, even then he was like even though he was like going on experimenting and with especially with the idea of like just coloring certain points of it like uh, it kind of shows that like even back then he was um he was looking at what what a film can kind of show like in in a visual sense looking at the different elements of a film like it isn't like like in some films like even even really great films like duck soup you get a sense of like the with the Mark Brothers. It's a bit. Mm-hmm. It's a vaudeville bit. They perfected the timing to like micro microsecond per- precision, but it's still them on like standing in front of a completely static camera and performing. Right, right. Tati over here is already showing like how to go and like 
how to go and like use um use a camera for comedy. Like there is um uh, like when the um carnival arrives, they the the different uh, the carnival is building a carousel in the middle of town, and the and the carousel has some a series of horses whose heads are poking out of the back of the truck that's of the carnival that's arriving, and it shows the kids chasing these. These horses that look kind of scared and frightening at the same time as the heads are at the bottom of the frame as the camera, as the camera is set on the truck as it pulls away. Literally, literally you're seeing these angles are a part of the comedy. And, and in a similar way, the colors are kind of are, get it, get to be like part of the, part of the emphasis as well. Right. It was, it was meant to be presented in color. He costumed his actors and, uh, painted the sets in ways that would have uh, fit the color film. The idea was that uh, the the town itself would be in very muted colors and black and white, but the carnival and uh, all the fair action would then bring bright colors into the frame. See, now that's really see, now that's really interesting. I like that, I like um, because I think it kind of I think it might tie into a couple of themes of Tati's later films that he was trying to do, and then also it seemed to me that like with uh maybe it's my illusion, but when I was watching the color version, it seemed that the uh French flag was especially bright mm-hmm. during the during during carnival the carnival sequences, you know, and and um and another thing that Tati just showed like the uh like is that he's he showed a level of like how the different kind of personalities of the townspeople, the personalities of the the, the car, carnival guys, the um the di- uh the, the different kids that visit, um and uh, and there's a little old lady who appears to be some sort of kind of chorus, kind of our our narrator guide to this uh, right. to this to mm-hmm. this world, you know, um and, and he's like um. Uh, it seems that, or even back then, he's like starting to go and sketch in, trying to go and sketch in a world of like people who have these notable facets of their behavior, and uh, just the way, even just the way they walk, the way they, mm-hmm. the way they open door, the increasing frustration of the shopkeeper as, as Francois insists upon driving into his store. <laughs> Observation is so important to Tati, and it's something he does so well. We're, we're, we're going to talk a lot about Tati as a performer and his characters, but uh, when watching Tati, you never want to forget that he is wanting us to focus not just on one or two characters, but the entirety of, of, of the group. And, 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 you know, as the films start out, he's making this point. As we go further on into his career, he's going to make this point far more emphatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he kind of, and he do, kind of does this by in his, um, in his next film by kind of like lowering, lowering the setting, lowering the scope of the setting a little bit. And, uh, and, and go, taking a character, playing a completely different character, as you mentioned, and going into a, 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 some very new, interesting new directions with it. And like that, that film was um, uh, Monsieur uh, Hulot's Holiday, Alfred, in 1953. Let's go away for a while. And this takes place 
place basically around just a series of buildings around the, uh, uh, around the seaside. Kind of a, a small resort community. And over this course of what is uh, just a series of days, a um, a various uh, people of different types, from like um, from like Amera, from like um, uh, tourists to like an older couple to some uh, uh, to a young lady visiting her relatives, all congregate upon this uh, general resort area, which has just a series of locations like a beach, a um, uh, a a picnic, a uh, general picnic area in the local neighborhood, and a kitchen with an incredibly loud r- uh, door slamming <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. Right, it it, it makes this uh, amazingly ridiculous noise for a door, and happens throughout the film, and. W- it's a technique that, that that Tati uses throughout his career is to record the sound uh, completely separately from anything that's going on uh, on set. So sounds will become ridiculously exaggerated. So when <laughs> you know there's not just going to be footsteps, there's going to be footsteps with all capital letters. <laughs> uh, th- th- that's right. Um, uh, Foley artists must hate Tati because it does. His tendency is to basically remove all this incidental. Like all incidental noise that people create or that, or, or that exist in the world to, and he just adds those sounds that he feels are important. Right. The introduction of, of Hulo, which, which is, is important because Hulo is going to appear in four of his six films and was a bit of a phenomenon in, in France and, and a beloved character. And this is, and mostly due to this film, uh, Mr. Hulo's Holiday, his introduction is everybody's in the uh, uh, in the dining area of the resort and uh, ever and Hulo unben- uh, walks in and, and the wind blows everything chaotically and because of what we talked about with the sound the wind is incredibly exaggerated now, yeah. now Hulo's character is basically that of an innocent he is uh we should talk about him physically because his physicality is is part of his his comedy sure. uh, tati is a very tall man and he uses that tallness this tall kind of lankiness to make himself awkward to be kind of too big for the area that he's in and that leads to all kinds of physical uh awkwardness but the key is he's generally oblivious to all this uh sometimes he realizes uh, that he's done something that uh, is socially unacceptable, but often it, he's just you know innocent to everything. He doesn't really speak. He'll say a few words. He'll, he'll make it the the first thing he says. He's got a he's got a pipe in his mouth when he has to introduce himself. Yeah, you can't understand what he says. And finally, the person he's talked to removes the pipe and says, "It's I'm Hulot." Yes, and so you get these little. Um, Little bits of of almost indecipherable dialogue. Uh, the modern day equivalent is uh, who a lot, more, most people will have heard of is uh, is Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson's character out of uh, England, who uh, is yes. very influenced by Tati and uses the same kind of lack of of verbalism uh, without being completely silent. Yes, uh, it, yeah. If you like Mr. Bean, then Tati is a Tati is a great, great um, uh, and Mr. Hulo especially is a very, very great character to check out. Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, um, and 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 Hulo's Holiday to me can kind of is very similar to uh the the setup of many a Mr. Bean episode where it's uh, a environment of people trying to behave properly 
and Mr. Bean has his own impulses. Mr. Bean is also kind of a childish figure, mm-hmm. but albeit he's a little more of like the kind of the selfish, spoiled kind of child right. <laughs> in his behavior. Um, now, now Hulozo, I mean, what if, what an interesting character. He's so, he's so unique. Like to me, he's like a human stork. <laughs> you know, the way he holds his arms behind him mm-hmm. and, and he's always kind of darting in and out of a particular scene. There's a really, there's a really funny sequence and, uh, that I find in, in Holly where he's playing ping pong and you can just see it like by, uh, by he's playing in another room, but occasionally he just dances in. He dances in as he gets the ball and he sashays back into the room to continue resuming his game. And even his pipe just attains like a measure of like a stork's bill. You know, it's, it's, he's like kind of at all odd angles, right. which helps, which helps, of course, when you have a lot of sensitive people <laughs> to, for those elbows to uh, connect. Right. Now, one difference uh, between especially uh, this film and a lot of other films featuring such a strong uh, comic character is the pacing, as as is appropriate to a film about uh, people on vacation. The pacing is very relaxed and it, it, it takes its time in showing the environment of the resort the areas of the uh, of nature that uh, the vacationers are in but for first time viewers it could be a little disconcerting because people are used to kind of a gag a minute kind of thing you know i brought up airplane first thing and this is mm-hmm. kind of the opposite of airplanes uh pacing it's taking its sweet little time and you know what? I think in this particular case, that really works uh, to the film's benefit. Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, yeah. It 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 goes and like it establishes its pace in very effectively. I think because like Hulo himself doesn't make a real appearance until something like maybe five or six uh, five or six minutes into the film, if not longer. And uh, and by the way, that appearance is if you really think about it, it's kind of sinister. <laughs> he has a rattling old jalopy, and mm-hmm. then he arrives <laughs> in a wind that disturbs everyone's uh, everyone's activity. <laughs> like, um, uh, and yet, like the actual result, like just couldn't be more a uh, less of a threatening figure. You know, right, right, yeah, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, it, yeah, he, uh, holiday, um, up uh, like a uh, ho- holiday to me, like it had like it's. It keeps, I think it keeps a nice pace going with it. And when Hulo, Hulo, um, gets involved in situations that take a little bit of time to build, but when they, when they cascade on himself, he does call him, go, call himself out to action. Like when there, when his car says to get away from him, or someone, th- someone realizes that he's inadvertently let a boat <laughs> go, he, he's kind of uh, very, very eager to go and scam, uh, and scamper away. Right, and, and I think we we both would agree that uh, Tati and this film is a, a funny film, but uh, for me at least, tell me if if you agree with this, Al. Is is it's more kind of giggles and smiles than full on belly laughs. Um, uh, I would go and um, uh, I. I, I had some I had some pretty I had some pretty decent laughs about both like how both like how manic his care both how manic his character got when he did not want to get him when he did not want to go and get himself caught mm-hmm. and um and just the incre- there and just the increasing anger of the hotel proprietor and the waiter 
who seem to like kind of have it in for Hulo from the beginning, and they just get more and more angrier in a Ted Knight from Caddyshack like right, manner. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and then there's the, then there's uh, um, a family whose father is uh, re- acts in a real obnoxious manner of always calling people from the office. And his his attempts to always be on the phone, whereas families are more and more destitute. Also, I think got some uh, duh, some more some more dividends for for me. Mm. So so I yeah it's um uh but yeah it's also like the smiles and chuckles thing comes from it has a very kind of um there's no malevolence to the film whatsoever. Tati you know even 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 people who act like obnoxious are not meaning bad are not meaning badly for people. Right cuz there there are people who are are supposed to be on vacation but they're bringing their business uh yeah. in, into the vacation which uh I think uh we're supposed to look a little askew at. Th- sure. th- there is one sequence I want to call out though cuz I think it almost defines both Tati's comedy and, and the Hulo character, and, and it and it, it it has to do with him uh, being in a boat. He's uh, painting a bit of the boat, yeah. And there's a he's the boat is right off shore and on the beach. There's a tide coming in, and there's a, a paint can uh, right next to the boat. And as he's painting, the tide will come in take the paint can away into the sea, then bring it back just in time for him to uh, to use the paint can again, take it and put it on the other side of the boat, which he finds curious. But, uh, you know, this, this, is, this is the kind of gag that, lo- you know, looks relaxed and simple, but my God, the amount of planning that must have taken. That's, that's right. And then, like, and then um, I, I really like that, too. But also, not just because of how technical they had to do to make, the, to make it look like that, but also... In a kind of a, in a, like more of a Stooges kind of comedy or a Marx Brothers kind of comedy, it would be like that paint would have been, uh, like next to a coffee cup mm-hmm. and it would have like, he would have dumped his paintbrush and so on and then tried to drink some of his, uh, now flavored coffee and so on. So it's kind of interesting that he, the paint is going exactly in the place where he needs it to be. <laughs> yes. And, and, and there's a interesting, th- scene shortly after that because it was a scene that was added to the film in the late 70s. Oh, yeah. It, 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 oh, oh, good. You, it, it'll be a, a nice surprise then because I was surprised because I would never have called this when uh, when I saw it. The, the, the boat that he's uh, painting, he, of course, steps on and it breaks in two, <laughs> then uh, goes out into the lake uh and or into the sea and uh, because it's in two it seems to have teeth it yeah. looks almost like a shark mm-hmm. which uh and it and it freaks out the uh the beachgoers uh, in the nearby uh area and what i found out was that yes he filmed this one sequence in the late 70s after seeing jaws and realizing that Mr. Hulo's holiday needed a shark scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Turns out he needed a bigger boat. <laughs> right. That's, right. Oh, wow, that's funny. I, I, guess, I guess it could have been worse. He could have really enamored for Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, another thing that, that you, you had mentioned about is about the music uh, to this film. It's got a little, little so, some interesting quirks to it. 
Right, right, yes. It's, um, uh, uh, right, exactly. It's kind of rather, um, uh, rather incessant. Uh, <laughs> like it, uh, has the same kind of note and goes, is redundant and happens again and over and over and again and over and over and over again. And, um, uh, like, what's, uh, what's the, ma- why, uh, would he spend so much on moving the paint can around that he literally just can't pay to get another theme? Well, I think that's the gag, too, is that he's using the music, uh, as part, as part of the comedy as well. It's featured in the opening credits and it stops awkwardly every, uh, couple bars or so for some sounds of waves coming in from the ocean and then back to the same musical theme and then back to the waves. It's, uh, it's part of his, uh, his comedy soundscape. Oh, okay. So like the, like the, like the, like the music is like, the music is kind of like sort of like people imposing their own musical thing upon upon nature, you know. Kind of maybe like I guess I would go I would I would liken it to like uh you try uh triggering the animal noises that they're wandering around through the rainforest cafe in Chicago and then just getting that particular sound, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if 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 you traveled through some Travel through some incredibly um, ersatz-like vi- villa, and you hit the, you step on the right platform. Oh, you get the fret, you get this theme, you get this theme, and then the waves will keep coming. But you're gonna hear that theme, and it actually ties into something that happens in the movie where where Hulo wants to listen to some music, and he blasts out some uh, blasts out some hot uh, ragtime number, and that everyone else gets to uh, quote unquote enjoy. <laughs> right, one of the great repeated gags in in the film is uh, at nighttime. Hulo is always the cause of of, uh, some commotion and you see the lights in the uh, in the resort just of all the rooms just go on one at a time right. because everyone is woken <laughs> up by hulo yet again yes 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 that, that that's right i'm hmm i wonder if that that's that's interesting i wonder if that's one of the earlier gags of, of like uh uh where ev- they just show how everyone's awoken just by having the lights the lights turn on Right. Well, again, as as is going to be consistent with with Tati, he favors long shots. So a lot of his gags are from a distance instead of focused in and close up. Yeah, yeah, and um, hmm, and and like um, I I wonder about that on the ending of Hulo. I mean, do you think? Did you think that like? Did you think that either you or Tati, when you see the conclusion of Holiday, the thought, well, this. Is the making of an iconic uh, iconic character? The character, absolutely. I did think that. I think he he is extremely charming, and and you see that with how he interacts with everybody else in the you know in the resort. Uh, the people who we like tend to like him. The people who we don't like tend to not like him. Uh, at this stage, I think he's very much uh, aud- you know has the audience's uh, sympathy. And but then you know you mentioned the end. It's it's an interesting break in tone uh, without giving it away. Uh, what has been this very quiet, subtle form of comedy, all of a sudden becomes very noisy yeah. and very broad. And because it's they they save it till the end, I, I, it's very effective too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. It's like he's his. Um, like his clumsy antics had like led to certain le- certain le- different levels of destruction, but it finally just kind of culminates on uh, culminates on it. And I I think it's after a very long a very late rendezvous where he needs to he needs to get back and has found himself horribly lost. Right, right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I also want to note that like that this is kind of like 
that this I think is a great expansion of what he was doing in Jurlafet because he in because he gives he gives uh, uh, enough of a measure of detail to the different people in the town um, aside from Hulo that that even though like you that even though you don't um uh, even though they barely have any more words to say than Hulo himself you kind of know you feel that you know them or at least you know how they would behave like the propri- like how the proprietor would behave mm-hmm. the 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 um uh, the cook like um uh, uh there's a there's a very charming scene where he's cutting some beef and you see it from a close up of the beef's uh, from the carve the beef being carved and he sees a person come in and he carves a slice another person comes in and carves a slice and then you see a, a kind of a more uh, fatter person come in, and then a little sigh comes from him as he moves the knife to cut off a much bigger slice for that <laughs> for that individual. Right. <laughs> and um, and then he he does a really nice recurring gag with a couple, like uh, an older couple who likes walking up and down the beach in the promenade, or rather, the lady likes to do that. And the guy is following her, and as the movie goes on, you um, uh, it's uh, uh, you see his reluctance uh, more and more, and including to a sequence where he's um, uh, where she's giving him seashells. Oh, how delightful! And he goes, yeah. He nods for a brief bit, then manages to have chuck it off back into the sea when she's not looking. Yeah, observation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and and that's right. And and like that's level of not just observation but sympathy. Uh, I think really comes into play with it because, because the kind of, because as you said, people, some people just don't like Hulo at the beginning and they don't like him at the end. But some kind of people are drawn for, to him and the people who are drawn to him are like it's such an interesting cross section. Like the young, like the young lady, the only uh, participant in the um, costume ball dance, for example. Right, and, and you get to see another aspect of Hulo, uh, which is, which is his uh, innocence about women and and sexuality. Uh, in another kind of movie, she might be a romantic interest, but since Hulo is uh, such an innocent, uh, his main concerns with her is to be as much a gentleman as possible. So uh, she is wearing a, a strapless dress and when they uh, dance he makes sure to have his hand only on the clothed part <laughs> of the uh, oh, of, nice, uh, around, nice. around her neck nice. so that he is not being in any way um, in any way forward as a character like Hulo would not want to be and of course this makes him even more charming to the that, young lady that you know that is really that is super interesting and it because it because he it's a character who's who is so oblivious to some other so so many other like features like like his basic rule basic ability of how to play tennis for example <laughs> or his mm-hmm. um uh, or uh like when he makes his introduction of hulo he's talking with his pipe talking with his pipe the proprietor pulls the pipe out he says his name and and the proprietor puts a pipe back in his mouth and takes a lot of extra time to pack his pipe so he can smoke it well. And then Hulo just puts the suitcase down and puts his hat back <laughs> on, which he could have totally done <laughs> at the very start. <laughs> um, and it and it also leads. It also starts with a particular theme that like that uh, that goes and bears out like in his um uh that starts to bear out in his later films. It starts to come in. It came in very very briefly in Injure the Fat. When you're the fat, when Francois wants to be more American, he wants to be more productive, he wants to be more efficient. He gets, he gets, of, of all things, 
he rides his bike with a telephone in front of it. <laughs> and he actually even tries to call. I don't know how he, I don't know what he was expects to do, what he expects to do with that. And, and, um, um, Hulot's holiday tweaks in on that. Like, technology is thought of as a little, as an imposition, definitely on the case of the guy who always needs to go and call in the, uh, call in the home office, you know. And, um, and, uh, Hulot's jalopy is meant to be a big contrast to all the fast cars when they, like, when they travel out to the, travel out to the picnic, uh, uh, picnic spot, you know, and then, uh, you could even say that, like, well, that the shed, <laughs> the shed has, is, uh, the shed that he ends up in near the end of the film just provides a real combustible combination on, on those, on those things. Right. Now, this film was, was a great success and people wanted the Hulo character back, but they asked, well, this is Hulo on vacation. What might Hulo be like at home? Right. Uh, yeah. Well, Woody, yes. Like, just the idea that he would have, would he have, what kind of home would he have, right? And what kind of, would he have a, would he have a family? And, and how, how would he treat the family and how would the family, you know, family treat him? And, uh, Tati goes, uh, and Tati went and explored that with his, explored that and then took the ideas of technology being like an imposition and really brought it up to the forefront in his, in his next film, like Mon Uncle in, uh, 1958. Um, and, uh, turns out the one uncle is um, uh, uh, Hulo himself. small child who uh the father goes and works in a factory that uh makes an apparently a single endless <laughs> red plastic tube <laughs> and uh, and he's the, he helps run the company as a result his family manages to live in one of the most atrocious houses in cinema history uh a a a hideous testament to like what modern living was, uh, quote unquote, was supposed to, what the dreams of modern living uh, was supposed to uh, get you. It's every nightmare of 1950s architecture that you might imagine is, is embodied in this grotesquery uh, of a house. Uh, that the, and, you know, the film may be a Hulo film, but what is unforgettable, no matter how much I try to forget, is the uh, ugly fish fountain. Uh, in the in in the yard, which is uh, meticulously arranged in weird stone patterns and uh, unusable pathways, but this fountain, which which has the fish uh, spitting bright blue water. Yes, that's right. Uh, when it is used, now it's not already used because one of the key points uh, the film makes is that the fish is only to be used for guests. So when uh when a when a when a guest is coming over the fish will be turned on but in one of I think the the best gags uh when somebody uh like Hulo or another family member or someone who they or 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 somebody who's there as a uh, as a worker comes in they initially don't know who it is cuz they have a giant gate so they turn the fish on thinking oh it's a special guest then they see it's not and then oh got to turn the fish right back off they yeah. don't they don't deserve the fish 
Yes, that fish is that fish is eight kinds of wrong because it's not just that it's out of water, it's also it's also squirting out water. So the effect is almost as like you can't just like let the fish like drown by sticking it in the air. You have to strangle all the water out of it first. Like when you turn off the fish's the fountain, like it literally has this hideous death gurgle as it spurts <laughs> out one last last bastion you know and later later when the later the fountain comes into a different state of disrepair to which all sorts of different colored liquids start <laughs> emitting out of it now the strategy of this movie which kind of echoes a little bit uh, of jour defeat is the to contrast this uh middle-class nightmare of what the French dream might have seemed if it went in a really wrong-headed way to uh, the more old-style France. Hulot himself lives in more a more traditional old-style building. Now, that, that building is filled with uh, comic bits as well because it's this disorganized, jumbled maze of a building that he has to go through various stories, which we see in long in, in long shot for him to get to his room and we just see at some point just just his feet running through uh yes. the, the 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 corridor in this in this very strange <laughs> <Yeah>. dilapidated building <laughs> that's right it's a full it's like a full shot of the building and it just has a holds a big long take as 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 hulo needs to enter in the middle then you see his feet show up on the left then his head appears in a window on the upper left and then he curves over on the right and follows what appears to be a curved staircase to get to the third floor on the right, to which he has to go across. And the effect is almost like as if like that that old trick about the um, where uh, a lady's like sawed in half and you see the different parts of her body, mm-hmm. but it's been dropped into the some of the rooms from uh, in- Inception. Now, something really different is going on with Hulot in this film, and one of the more interesting things about Tati is he kind of reimagines Hulo in each of his appearances. Uh, in uh, Mr. Hulo's holiday, he was basically the cause of chaos through his his bumbling and and his obliviousness. He he does some of that in in, in this film as well. But whereas he kind of went unscathed um, and. Aside from a physical injury in, in Holiday, but but mostly yeah. <laughs> went unscathed. Uh, the the theme of this film is basically acts to defeat Hulo. Uh, Hulo is not does not belong in this modern uh, bourgeois environment, which is all about surface and uh, and technology and and modernization. Where as he's representing, uh, you know, something again, wholly more innocent. Yeah, and but uh, that's certainly. I mean, that's certainly true. In fact, he gets kicked out of both environments. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 which is leads to just go and like, um, leads to go and like wonder about Hulo's place, Hulo's place in the world in in general, you know. But 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 then you look at the the world presented by that house. And oh my God, who could live there? What humanity? Could, what humanity could sa- safely coexist in there? Like that—that that is a case. I mean, that house is a uh, uh, to me is a nonstop demonstration of literally. Let's do the exact wrong thing <laughs> for what we for what anything a building can functionally do. Right there are windows that are meant to look like eyes. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and so you you they you open them and the people in the windows then look like pupils of eyes. Yeah. And this garage is is fi- fixed with uh with an automatic opener that can be uh triggered by a dog uh That's right. walk, walking through it. Then then it doesn't just open and shut but opens and shut vi- shuts violently. Right. And, and just be, be uh, I just wanted to mention also dogs are a big theme in this film. Uh you see uh, packs of dogs running running around together throughout both the the old town and and the the new suburbs uh but you know but one of them has a sweater on and we realize that that is the dog that belongs to uh, hulo's sister and 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 brother-in-law yeah in fact i want to even say there was a case where like where um where the uh, where the brother-in-law flustered by what hulo has uh gone up to uh again um, he ends up like he's like relaxing on trying to relax in his lawn, and the dog is lying next to him, and they're both wearing a the similar tartan uh, right. <laughs> um, uh, a sweater. Yeah, but I mean, in addition to the eye, to the like these big circular uh, windows, which end up looking like, <laughs> which not only end up looking like eyes during a nighttime shot, but the vertical gratings literally look like the teeth of a of a skull, <laughs> like uh, that's. Uh, this is um, truly an architectural nightmare. Oh, definitely, yeah. and and like. Like even the like the plants, there are plants that are attached to the side, and they look shriveled and dying. As if it's like butterflies posted on a wall, you know, posted on a wall. Um, and there is no straight line. It's a Lovecraftian nightmare as well because <laughs> there's no straight lines in this yard, and you have to jump, navigate yourself on these dots that are placed on this on a quote-unquote garden which um doesn't look looks like it's different colored rocks or sand and of course hulo being the ever polite one will try to uh step only on on the dots uh so that he's not stepping uh, anywhere he shouldn't and and of course that leads to him getting into getting all twisted and in with himself and others (laughs) yeah yes there's a yeah there's a sequence where he's trying to uh keep pace with these uh two people who are pacing in the garden but he only has a limited amount of like uh stones which he can use so it becomes this like uh demented hopscotch game of propriety of him as he needs to leap mm-hmm. across one to another to not step on any actual ground right right his other two roles are uh, mentor, uh, you know, via the title of of his nephew, a young young boy who mm-hmm. uh, isn't really drawn out that much, but is is clearly not getting a lot of attention from his parents, who are far busy, uh, too busy concentrating on the latest gizmos in in their house. Uh, and so, yes. of course, Hulo being uh, his favorite, you know, fellow child, <laughs> right? Way before Louise Bluth and um and Buster. Uh, and their and their Roomba in Arrested Development. There was a there was a scene in Mon Uncle where the kids wants to talk to his mommy, but instead he gets a robot vacuum cleaner in the in his living room instead. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, what it, I mean, like my the here is a case. I think that like I am I give Tati a lot of credit for for like literally exploring the idea of like what does it mean for modern society and and trying to put that in a in a kind of. Uh, in a kind of expressive kind of nightmare world thing. I kind of think he goes a little too far in kind of both directions though in it because everything about that house is in the, there's there's not only there's nothing in that house which any human being would ever functionally like use and they don't use it. Like they have lo- things that look like lawn furniture that they used to sit inside. They go outside to eat. They go outside to watch TV. <laughs> 
I mean, and and they have to like, and they have to um, uh, and that garage which slams the door like the like the Law and Order theme noise, like is leads to a path of a of a yard door that they have to manually open anyway, making the whole thing completely redundant. Right, and what does it do to the comedy of it? Because there's uh, there's now more of a tension going on than in his earlier films. Uh, we're just a little uncomfortable with uh with Hulo in this environment especially because he ends up you know having to get a job which he's not suited for uh basically on the verge of being kicked out at any point and uh I, again he his his bumbling is now in is now coming back on himself and Tati is starting to become more interested in the theme, the themes of modernization, in what that can do yeah. to uh, regular people, and we're going to see that play out in some very interesting ways. Um, sure, um, but the um, uh, but like at least in this one, I think in some ways it's kind of a it's kind of a not uh, not the best fit because it um, because Hulo sometimes acts even in. In ways that are more ablaze than the, than to be even believable, such as if you're going to go to a job interview, for example, you should not let a couple dogs go. <laughs> right. And then at and then, but then also, like to me, the town, the town, the town, the small uh, town uh, life where he comes from before he moves in with his family, is treated as just a delightful playground to the complete with like, with very with no negative aspects to it at all. And it's such a contrast to the nightmare world of the house that it almost seemed that like that you're that to me that like you're walking through two different parts of Epcot Center. <laughs> yeah, I think I liked this one a little more more than you did, but it, it's definitely the one film in this early stage of his career that I don't think uh, is as much of an advancement. I think that the the first two films are funnier and, and are better, although this one presents some new ideas. But in retrospect, it might be more of a prelude than something that he was making his final statement on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, when uh, in his next movie, I think he kind of brings out all these kind of themes that he was exploring through his er earlier works. Um, it it took him quite a while to make after after Mon Uncle, but like almost like ten years, but. Uh, in 1967, uh, Tati released his film Playtime, where Hulot's now totally trapped in an urban environment. But in a way, kind of way, uh, we all are. We're all trapped in that kind of modern, we're on that kind of modern world that, uh, Tati presents. And it's a, it's a world of like steel and glass and endless corridors and, and buttons that go and like <laughs> that go and call people and open things and close other things and 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 it causes this just big epic like labyrinth and it um uh, and uh, what is Hulo going to do to try to navigate this kind of navigate this kind of world and in fact Hul is Hulo like might be the ultimate kind of guide <laughs> right and when we're talking about playtime I think we are talking not only about Tati's best film, but one of the all-time greats.
to say it ratches it up a notch would would be an understatement. I want to just read a little bit of what Roger Ebert had to say in his great movies review of Playtime because I, I think it captures some of, of the uniqueness of this film. Uh, Roger Ebert says, uh, Jacques Tati's Playtime, like 2001 A Space Odyssey or The Blair Witch Project or Russian Ark, is one of a kind, complete in itself. A species already extinct the moment of its birth. Even Mr. Hulo, Tati's alter ego, seems to be wandering through it by accident. Instead of plot, it has a cascade of incidents. Instead of central characters, it has a cast of hundreds. Instead of being a comedy, it's a wondrous act of observation. It occupies no genre and does not create a new one. It's filmmaking showing us how his mind produces the world around him. And, and I think that's exactly right. This is such a, a singular film, uh, and there's there's none like it. It's, it. And it's partially because he creates this world from scratch. What looks to be uh, from the airport setting to uh, a restaurants to a, 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 a city uh, central hub was all created in the studio, uh, specially built sets. Even the buildings uh, are uh, miniatures that are, are made to look gigantic. So he's created something visual that we've never seen before because – in his hands, you know, we've seen, you know, we obviously have seen a lot of construction epics, but usually comedies tend to be more small scale. Somehow, Tati manages to combine very, uh, very, very funny and great gags into, uh, into a setting that y your mouth is constantly agape because it's something new to film at this point. It is uh, in remarkable in so many ways. Um, and to me, I actually kind of think that I kind of like, uh, I'm, it puts me in a, a couple of different, different places, honestly, because I do find it like to be kind of a perfect movie. Uh, um, by that, I mean, when you see like, when you see a film, Sometimes you get you are aware of how every single part of the film fits the message the film is trying to do. Every atom of it, <laughs> every every camera angle, every every uh, every performance, every like every light choice, every uh, every choice on the sound design, it all fits together. And this is um and this film makes this evident through like uh, through the uh, very first frame. And, and so, yeah, as, as one of those works where like it is exactly right all the way through and it's clear that it's from a director's singular vision, I put very, very a few amount of uh, films up to that level. It, it introduced it. I'm sorry. It doesn't introduce something, but it brings to its logical uh, extent uh, something that Tati in interviews has called uh, the democratization of uh a film uh characters and film comedy he the hulo character had become somewhat of a of a problem for him because it although commercially successful and every film he made up until playtime 
was very commercially successful. He felt like so many people who have standard characters do that he was trapped in in this Hulo world and how many Hulo movies would he have to make? And his idea was that everyone is funny, that it's not just the comic or himself or the main character that's funny, but everyone that's funny is, is funny in their own way. So what he tries to do in playtime is take this gigantic cast and put basically the extras front and center are people who might be extras in other movies. They're all presented as, uh, as comic creations and give the viewer the choice of who to follow. Now you still have Hulo. He realized because he spent a lot of money on this film that in order to have the kind of commercial viability he, he wanted that Hulo had to be here. But whereas Hulo was front and center in the earlier two here, he's a bit more of a side. I mean, I mean, he still has more screen time than pretty much any of the other characters, but there's a lot of scenes that do not involve Hulo. There's a lot of time devoted to other characters and just group settings. We see, again, long shots where uh, one gag is happening uh, uh, on one side of the screen and you could watch that. But meanwhile, there's another gag uh, on the other side of the screen happening at, at the same time. Hmm. Like, um, uh, di- um, didn't you find though that like he, that he, um, uh, he was trying to like put emphasis on other characters, even from like, uh, Monsieur Hulot's holiday, because like there were, there were points where you were concentrating on people exercising on the beach there mm-hmm. or, or in, or in, uh, on Mon Uncle, like there is, um, uh, there is a, a case where the, the, um, uh, the, um, pipe smell function and the, and the tubing goes into, uh, all sorts of interesting shapes and the different members of the factory all, uh, like, combine to try and get rid of it, right? So it does seem to, like, he does, he, he seems to always have focus on other people and their, ob- and observe their details that make them different. Certainly, and I'm not saying this is a departure in that way, but more taking that idea to its logical conclusion. Um, one thing he does is provides us with uh, some characters at the very beginning that are called fake Hulos. So you yeah. see characters uh, dressed like Hulo. And, and because now if we've already, if we were living in 1950s and 60s France and knew Mr. Hulo, you'd expect him. So you have these characters who look like him but are not him. Yeah. And uh, eventually he, he shows up, but he's kind of teasing us a little bit and like, you know what? you're here for Hulo, but this just ain't about Hulo. This is about this entirety uh, of, of the, uh, of the characters presented of, uh, and they include tourists. They include the people who are trying to uh, create this, uh, this very modernized urban environment. Um, And this strategy, by the way, just works Perfectly for for me, because as uh, we go on with these podcasts, I'll probably be referencing uh, Robert Altman quite a bit because he is my favorite director and my favorite film is Nashville. And Nashville, Hmm. I think, whether consciously or unconsciously, was influenced by Playtime because that's a film that features 24 characters and no leads. And here is a film where... Every character is a character where, you know, you're asked to, 
you know, you, you leave Hulo and, and watch uh, some people uh, working at a restaurant try to fit a fish through a window that the fish is too big for. The fish yeah. on the tray is too big for. Mm-hmm. And uh, you follow, uh, you know, all these uh, all, all these tangents of, of tourists who, uh, you know, are somehow sidetracked and they never get – they're there to see France, but they only see, like, the big – French uh, landmarks like the Eiffel Tower through reflections in the windows instead of seeing the actual thing. Yeah, that is, um, uh, yeah, this is a real, I mean, yes, yeah, so this movie is puts me in a very, in a very weird place upon for that very, for that very reason, those reflections that at certain points of the movie, uh, like a door would open and you see on the reflection, there would be the Arc de Triomphe or the, uh, or the Eiffel Tower, but then it's gone in, in just an instant. And, Tati's direction does not emphasize does not emphasize and nearly anything in the film. So it's it's you either get to notice it or not. This is um this is um a film that like to me kind of forgoes casual viewing. Like like it's I some people might like of uh, feel bad about the chilly reception because it did not make money when it came out and that and 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 think that like and it it might be cool to think that like that that such people were like these these obtuse people who didn't quote get it but i i don't feel that way because i i don't think because i think if he if you if he dashes his expectations upon hulo like especially in the way that he does does like is it? I don't think it's necessarily wrong for people to expect a surrogate character or a character that they would that they enjoyed and went to the theater to see to like go and like help follow them around on this particular journey through this environment. You know? Well, well I mean, it was even more than uh, than just a flop. It basically uh, was the destruction of Tati's career. Uh, Tati Tati spent so much money. On this film, it was one of the most expensive films ever made in France, and it made very little money because it was absolutely not interesting. Interested in anything we generally associate with uh, with, with entertainment that 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 we you know it's uh, it's such a it's such its own animal mm-hmm. that there's no context. Uh, to view it until you've actually viewed it. Uh, one critic, uh, I forgot his name, but he, he, he said, not only do you have to see Playtime numerous times to get all the jokes, you have to see it from different seats in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's like, uh, as you had described earlier, like he does a, he, he does a gag where like, he does a gag where it's over in the upper left part of the screen. And then he does a, a sequence like in the next shot or the next, uh, uh in the next sequence. And where a gag is somewhere in the lower middle. <laughs> and, but to get there, like, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, the jokes don't appear to me in a frequency enough. Like, um, does it need, uh, where I don't even think it needs to be an airplane level frequency, but I, uh, but it, they takes its time enough for one gag to manifest itself to another gag to manifest itself. And while all this is happening, uh, you get a lot of activity. There's a lot of things in the screen that you that you could be watching, and if you watch seven or eighths of the different seven eighths of the part of the screen where the gag's not happening, you'll miss it. 
Yes, but there are always gags of some point, of some kind going on. And in that way, it does have uh, uh, that kind of pacing that an airplane might have, except it's not the over-the-top, in-your-face gag each time. Sometimes it's something very subtle. The very first gag in the film is a group of nuns walking through the airport corridor, and their habits are kind of have parts that are shaped like birds and are flipping around and making little bird noises. Mm-hmm. And it's something that that is very underplayed, and it, it happens and then it ends. But it, it kind of introduces the... Uh, strategy of of how comedy is worked into this, because some 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 of them are so subtle you you, you won't notice them. There's a uh, uh, a scene where uh, Hulo is, is he's there for a job interview, and so he's waiting in a all glass room where uh, where inside you know, an all glass floor. Yes, right. And then there 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 are gags that involve uh what may or, what looks like two people who are in the same space but actually there's glass dividing them. Mm-hmm. But in this particular room he's trying to navigate these squeaky annoying chairs that seem right out of the house from Mon Uncle. Yes. And uh you sit in them and they make little farting sounds and uh <laughs> and they and, and you you push them down and they pop up in the kind of amusing way but yeah. there are portraits of all the what we assume are the company founders throughout the wall and they're all looking very stern and 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 uh, as hulo is trying to navigate these chairs you notice that uh when we look up at the portraits they're actually different than the original portraits because now they're looking directly at where hulo is standing yes. <laughs> and basically yeah. scowling demeaningly at him yeah yeah that is um uh uh, yeah, that that particular sequence, and in fact, the, in fact, to me, like the first section of of playtime to me is like, um, I think I think it does its theme all the way throughout, but it is especially strong in the ver in the the fir- in the first half hour as where Hulo navigates this interview through this um this uh labyrinth office environment which is next to an adjoining place that is showcasing all the modern gadgets for tomorrow like um uh that particular room for example like all the chairs are around the table but they're too far away from the table <laughs> mm-hmm. just a little bit too but unlike in mon uncle where they the chairs may as well be laying on the side and <laughs> and like hulo ends up using a a sofa by putting it on its side and that's the only way you can use it but unlike there like Tati dials it back a little bit and makes things plausible. They feel real because they feel like the kind of design of modernity that people that people recognize, but he pushes it just a little bit to enhance so you appreciate the absurdity of it. You get pushed a little off balance instead of just reacting in you know stark horror right. like they do the many things mm-hmm. in Mon Uncle. And then the chairs also, they never actually there's no point where the chairs actually face each other where people can actually have a conversation. And and the, and the, even the pictures, as you described, they appear to almost be like those old school, um, uh, old school haunted house things where the eyes are sternly casting, uh, casting uh, be- uh, evil glances at Hulo, no matter where he is in that mm-hmm. room. <laughs> right, and uh... <laughs> and the, and then the and then the chair as well. Not only when the chair happens, but they, but he, uh, another person is being interviewed, and when Hulo is sitting in the chair. Uh, a person sitting in an adjoining chair, which since they're both facing in the same direction means they can't converse or anything, but as they sit down and stand up sort of to greet each other, the chairs sort of help 
like squeeze out some noises of acknowledgement. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the other guy in the interview is almost as noisy as that chair is. He's all full of these fun. Whereas Hulo is Hulo is a little awkward, but his stuff is mostly silent. But this guy is is every move is precise, but it's noisy. And obnoxiously noisy. He brush how he brushes his shirt, mm-hmm. how he like opens and closes his briefcase, how he like um uh, like even he even his like squirting of uh, uh nasal spray is just um uh, a little bit too obnoxious, like calling attention to himself. Right. This his strategy of using a soundscape of of using exaggerated sounds like, that he's always been doing is also brought uh, to another level here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like it's. And he, he is so, and Tati is so good at like getting a perspective of, of, especially in the beginning, of just showing like just distances between people and how people just get pushed away, even if they're right next to each other. And sometimes they're not even people. Because if you look in the backgrounds of some of these scenes, you will often see, uh, what looks like, uh, cutouts of people they're not even real (laughs) right (laughs) yes yes and i mean and to me it actually it really adds to the adds to the flavor and there i mean there is a particularly wondrous shot where hulo's trying to find this guy that he's been trying to that he's been trying to hold an interview with and it has him in the center of the frame and he's surveying this landscape on the floor below him which is everybody is in their own little cubicle which has the uh, ceiling exposed to the the floor above them and they're all it's all this kind of honeycomb, honeycomb-like maze, um, but lit in this like fluorescent, fluorescent blue. Like huh, way before the Matrix, he uh, like Tati was Tati was out showing how all these people had their own little were, were just keep compare pen, compartmentalizing and putting themselves at a distance. Right, and you might be uh, envisioning modern cubicles, but in in fact, the cubicles are probably about eight, you know enclosed on all four walls and about ten feet tall. So it, 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 the the visual the visualness you're talking about is so stark, especially when uh, somebody in one cubicle ends up calling somebody in another cubicle just a few feet away, yes. rather than coming by and actually speaking to them. Exactly right. In fact, I want to say there's even another sequence where he he needs to get some documents to give to another person, and he literally walks up to that exact same cubicle, but he's on the outside, mm-hmm. so he doesn't even realize the person he was talking to is actually just on another side of a perforated on a, of, a, of a wall and he literally walks back to the other far corner right and, and, and what we just are not going to be able to do justice to in in talking about it is is just how amazing these things look we can talk about something like a cubicle and a structure but we're dealing with filmmaking at the highest level so if you could imagine how a kubrick or a malik would um would would shoot objects in a way that are is is original and striking that is what's happening here yes i mean yes that cannot be emphasized that cannot be emphasized enough and probably one of the most like biggest things i get out of looking at like tati's career from his early from his early days it's like a a vaudeville or a music hall like um uh like as a pantomime mm-hmm. as a pantomime artist and from those kind of be- from those kind of beginnings to make something like playtime is just is just really an astounding thing to contemplate the the actual because he because like you're absolutely right he does a precision 
to his film that would do that would do proud by Kubrick, that would do proud by Wes Anderson, that would um, that like that has that has such a great design aesthetic to it. And coming from a guy who was the French equivalent of Chris, it's like expecting Chris Farley to make two thousand one. <laughs> who would have thought? I mean, what what in fact what drives a guy like what drives a guy to make that kind of statement on modernity and go so far to 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 um to express it you know it leads me to a really inter- to a really interesting question to me about like because sometimes you get these directors who are known of like they've gone too far they've they've made they they make these uh they make these films and like they they try to reach for something and and it sort of gets away from them of course the most famous one is heaven's gate but Camino, like, was really striving to go and like take his filmmaking out to another level, and he, and he just missed the mark. And it ru- and like Tati, his career was ruined as a result. In fact, it took he took down a whole studio. Right, and though, and that movie does have uh, people who want to reevaluate it and 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 say that it's better than its reputation. Uh, that might be a subject for a, a more extended uh, talk. But but uh, but I think what, what happened here is the audience at the time viewed it just that way, that this was too far. This was something that uh, they could not follow him with. But then as time went on and the you you got more perspective uh on, on filmmaking through the you know evolution of filmmaking through um the new waves the various new waves and new hollywood and whatnot and i think they reevaluated this film and said wow there's there's something special here yeah and 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 this this film to me is like one of these it's kind of part of the thing that makes it such a singular achievement is is i don't know of another film that is such a great combination where it ruined the the person creating it, and yet he succeeded. He spent he spent nearly ten years to make. He spent like almost he he got horrendously in debt to make this film, and yet the result is exactly the vision that he was exactly the vision that he wanted. And 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 on and none of the components feel out of none of the parts of the film feel out of feel out of place. And 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 I think he was successful in expressing what he wanted to express. From, from start to finish. I mean, exactly. that's, that's my and, impression. And, and I do want to also talk about the second half of the film, because in my opinion, the 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 comedy of this film builds, and whereas most of the first half takes place in an airport and an office building, eventually, uh, after some interludes, uh, we end up at a uh, restaurant opening, a, a grand posh restaurant having its its opening. Um, and the Royal Lounge, I believe it's called? That's right, that's right. <laughs> An amazing uh, sound gag is introduces this through a neon light that uh, that, that brings people, th- that points people in the direction of the glass doors and makes uh, this rather hilarious sound to... Uh, bug zapper sound. Exactly, it exactly. Makes a, it makes a bug zapper sound, and, and, and the, it's mm-hmm. at the, I just want to say... It makes the form of a of a of a constantly drawing redrawing question mark. Yes, 
and leads to one of the funniest gags in the film, which is the doorman stuff. And so this doorman is constantly uh, trying to open open the door in time for the, the customers to come in and, and being o- overly uh, fastidious about it. Uh, and, of course, Hulo comes in and smashes the glass in the door. But that will not stop the doorman, who will continue to hold the handle and continue to open that for people even though there now is no door (laughs) (laughs) yes yes like like to me like uh, even though i even though i think the whole film like works as its own entity but i did i definitely feel like there's two distinct sections to it like that that the the like the first part of it it's kind of uses hulo as sort of a guide through this through this this really richly depicted like like modern alienating kind of world where like people are are such a like at odds at technology and people don't people fail to recognize even when the people they need to talk to are nearby and uh, there's even a, a a nice moment where someone miss someone thinks Hugo uh, Hulo is a thief because he because he's uh, he's wearing the same kind of coat as someone who actually took uh, takes stuff from a drawer which when you look at it in the showroom. It could very well have been like a perfectly ordinary display drawer, but instead it turns out it's part of the, the part of the uh, person's office, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and uh, and and as like a whole exploration of that kind of same kind of displacement that you get like out of two thousand one, where these people eat this like formless paste <laughs> instead of instead of good looking food, and and Floyd has to read a, a eighteen lines of instructions about how to use the space toilet. That same sense of human disconnection against the world that they themselves have created is like so delivered so nicely and then it, it can and then there's a pivot to me like it literally is like a fulcrum of a seesaw when hulo visits his buddy and then and he's in these an apartment which has a full-scale window that shows the street and everything that tati shows from that point is from the street view in this kind of really wonderful take, almost like a rear window in reverse, where we hear all the the street noises, but we don't hear what happens inside. But at the same, but while they're watching a TV program to the right of them, the people on the apartment to their right, they're watching a TV program on the left. And as you look at it, it almost appears that these people are actually behaving, talking to each other, conversing with each other, when in reality they're reacting to a TV screen. It's a really wonderful metaphor. Right, and and it takes the idea of – Tati is constantly uh... – Using ob- using objects in ways that they're not supposed to be used. That's great. So here That's is right. the t- what is what is a, supposed to be a television, actually appears to us to be a, a window to their neighbor's apartment. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then and think right after that, if I'm not mistaken, then they get to the establishment of the restaurant. Right. And there, actually, I think you, I think. Even it's it's getting ready for opening day, even though parts of the restaurant aren't quite built yet. And but then you, I think Hulo disappears for a long stretch over at that point. As you get to know the the waiters, the head waiter, the um uh, the architect, the uh, the owner, and the the main chef, and so on. And you get the setup, and he sets up all how this wonderful ultra modern. It kind of goes a little monocle, especially with in the sense of like those are hideous chairs. <laughs> That no one should ever sit on, and you will see why when you see the movie. <laughs> um, and and but that but that sign that you pointed out with the question mark—that's just a great, that's just a great 
indicator. The fact that it's a, the fact that it's like this combination of question mark and bug zapper. And when Hulo comes in, he's trying to be friendly. And his friend, who invited him in, ironically, he just wants to do his job. He just wants to do his job. This is, in this whole restaurant, everyone has their role to play. But Hulo just wants to be friendly. And so he's holding the door. And the conflict between the two literally causes the reality of that modern world to shatter. Right. And, and but, but the guy still has a job to do. It doesn't matter if the reality is shattered. He still needs to do his job. <laughs> and that, that's the difference between, uh, Mon Uncle and Playtime is Hulo and what Hulo represents is defeated in Mon Uncle. But in Playtime, he's actually going to, he's facing even greater odds but is going to have a chance to uh, to win to even the score or to bring things further back to his point of view, which is the more nat- naturalist point of view. Because what happens in the restaurant uh, is is pretty amazing. First of all, you have the gags start to come even faster. You have this wonderful bit where there's some uh, a, a fancy dish that, uh, that 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 waiters keep passing and think, okay, we need to season this more. We need to salt this more. We need to put more more stuff on this. Except it happens so often that <laughs> that it's become absolutely unedible, and then it never even gets served. Well, so, so that's the perfect purpose for an inedible dish. Right, to, to not to it's, not it's, be eaten. Right, exactly. Yes. It's the it's the, the the food version of the tree in the forest that no one hears. Right, right. <laughs> and you have the the this this snooty dance hall and the uh, you know upper crust of of society, you know, ma- making it theirs. And then you see Hulo again. Now Hulo at this point uh, has a um, we haven't mentioned her, but uh, there there's a woman who's kind of a spiritual. Uh, 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 companion. Companion. Thank you to Hulo. Uh, uh, her name is an American Barbara. tourist, Barbara, who also, who is the one person who wants to kind of stop and smell the roses. Literally, and, in one case, right? And the and one it, rose thing in downtown Paris. Exactly. And, 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 and enjoy what's around her and, and be able to appreciate things. And that's what nobody is doing. So now, they are, they both find themselves along with you know hundreds of other people in in this uh, restaurant, and Hulo through his uh, you know klutziness manages uh, in trying to fix uh, a structure up on the top of the ceiling, uh, manages to pull the ceiling down yeah. on the restaurant, but in a way that creates a second smaller restaurant so the ceiling comes down in an exact way uh to to that you can still see everything but a, a a a small room has now been created and that's where the real people are gonna go and that's where hulo and the people who are gonna fight against this you know modern nightmare that we're being presented and bring humanity back into the circle now have their space right it's a compartment it's a compartment that Hulo manages to create you compart a room of your own into as as it were and, and except that like this is a room where you can go and invite people in instead of keep keeping things out to yourself like so many of the other rooms are are 
uh, and Tati is so effective at showing so many of the rooms and the glass enclosures of being empty and barren, and in fact, like almost like as if it's the Hall of Mirrors from the Lady from Shanghai, except the piece would have disappeared into one of the mirrors, and maybe their own existence is not, uh, <laughs> and maybe their own existence is not like um uh, uh their own reality is called like into question, um. Uh, yeah, and Hugh, but yes, that's, that is a, is a kind of a, a, in the course of the movie, like Hulot's act is like inadvertently defiant. Yes. And then the movie, as it, uh, reaches its end, follows Hulot and there, there is redemption. I, I want to talk about the ending of the film because I, I think it, it, it in an extraordinary film it might be the most extraordinary sequence hmm. because we are now the next morning and our tourists and and, he, and everybody is now set uh, to depart so you know we're back uh in the uh, the area basically in the airport area and everyone's getting into their cars and buses and and trying to go and there there's a, a bit of a, a a traffic jam going on there's a, a a traffic circle where no one can seem to move and you think well wait a minute now he the film is going back to establishing the oppression of of this modern metropolis but tati has a twist because what we start to hear on the soundtrack now is carnival music. And what happens is everything we see, which can on the one hand be looked at as a traffic jam, as the practicality of people trying to leave an area, becomes instead a illusionary version of carnival rides. So you might see uh, some, a, a window cleaner um, opening a, a giant win- a, a giant window and the reflection of the bus is in the window. And when we see the bus in the reflection as it's opened, it looks like it's flying away and we actually hear the crowd go, whoa. As we see the, the traffic circle, it becomes to look like a carousel. And everyone there is now in this environment but because the context has now changed now the movie has fulfilled its title it's become a carnival it's become playtime right right yes he yeah he uh, like the message like that i think tati brings along in 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 playtime what he was yeah what he's trying to do and uh, and to an extent i i totally see why he wanted to do like the why, why he wanted to diffuse like obvious attempts at humor because the idea being is that if you look for the humor in playtime, it is there. It is there all around you. You just have to look. And I think that part of the reason that the movie move like has the gags in all sorts of different directions and never really gives you an obvious, except by the end, right? The end yes. becomes pretty unavoidable. But like, but during, especially during the, di- especially during the dinner sequence where it does kind of build and build, but but the direct, but the gag could come from any part of the frame, and and it may take a minute or two minutes for the gag to finally manifest itself. Like there's a particular one with a, if you're not careful, you'll miss the slowly melting airplane model, right. <laughs> for example. <laughs> and and I think I think what Tati was trying was was trying to do, and if you come in with a spirit to go and like go say, well, well, what's what's going on? What is what uh, what is weird and out of place going to it? 
it, it will reinforce it. It'll keep, it will keep building. The more you, the more you look, the more you concentrate on playtime, the more it will reward you. And by the end, when it's the carnival, it can become, I can see how it can become this wonderful aha moment. And, and ideally, ideally, and, and maybe it worked for you, it for, for series, it didn't quite work for me as well, hmm. but I, 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 I love how Tati, the, what Tati's mission is to do it. Because the idea is after you finish playtime, you can go outside and leave the movie theater or leave your house to go on a, a walk outside and you look at like, you can, and you can look at a streetlight or look at a couple passing by on the, passing by on a crosswalk or, or see a, or see a dog misbehaving on a, on some steps. And you'll catch the what's remarkable or unique or beautiful or lovely or weird or strange. And and it's all around us. And Tati's film can be looked at as a really pleasant, fun instruction manual about how to look at things just his way. Exactly, because previous to that, it had all been about environment in that, you know, if you were uh, at a holiday resort... Then, you know, everything was all right. Uh, if you were in a traditional, uh, old style French environment, it was, it was cool. But modernization, uh, is something that, that Tati has a big problem with. And, and in fact, I, I compare Jacques Tati to Ray Davies of the Kinks. Because hmm, if, if you listen, if you listen to the Kinks, their, their constant themes are nostalgia and a look back to the good old days. It's something that, uh, is lyrically omnipresent in, mm -hmm. in things, albums like the Village Green Preservation Society. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Tati is, is on that same vibe of a traditionalist of, you know, the old fashioned is, is, is something special. And let's be a little suspicious of, you know, some of this progress. But in playtime, he finally says, you know what? We want, it's not one or the other. You can have, uh, you can be in the city. You could be in an ultra modern version of Paris that may be made of glass and steel. But if you are able to look at it from a certain point of view, you know, you could live your, your life the way you want to live it. Yes. Yes. It's like the criticisms that people could make against in Mon Uncle that, that, that he's just championing the old ways. He's not doing that in playtime. He is saying we can look at the environment as it is. And not just like rebel against it or completely throw it away, but there's a way we can twist it or turn it or, or the way we behave in it, that we can make things our own and that we can look at it and see that there is, that the things that make humanity unique and make the world unique and remarkable are actually can be still there even in the, even in the sterile environment. Now, now. All, I mean, all that being said, I do have to admit that I just, that I just have, I still have just some reservations about it because sometimes I get that feeling of watching, and I've seen Playtime multiple times, and, mm -hmm. and which, by the way, if you're inclined to view that, it is, still gives you rewards because just like the comedies we mentioned earlier, it's so dense in all this detail that you will keep getting more and more things out of the mill the more and the more that you see it and the more and more you pay attention. But sometimes when I view it, I do get a kind of a sense of how um, it's almost like 
how much of that, that message, while it's a really good one, a very positive one, but it's also, to me, kind of a simple one, which, not to say that a simple makes it bad, but it is, to me, seems at odds with the level of detail, the level of money. Did he really have to do this? Like, to me, I'm going to give a horrible analogy, which, um, which is like, if, imagine if you brought together all the fo- components of the London Philharmonic Orchestra to do a really kick-ass version of the Benny Hill theme song. <laughs> is it lovely? Will people enjoy it? Will people laugh? Will people like it? Sure, they could, but did you, at the same time, well, well, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm caught on that kind of like, I'm caught on that kind of a dil- uh, dilemma. I'm glad that Tati made the leap for it. I think he was successful at it. I just think that like, man, if he, if he was able to make more movies, and not get ruined by right. doing it. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, you tell me, maybe it had to be as perfect as it is. Maybe the, maybe the movie had to be as absolute precise for his message to come through in the first place. Well, the, the you know, the, the message and uh, what is the, the, the saying, the medium is the message. The, the mm-hmm. medium was perfect for this message because if you're going to describe the dangers describe the dangers of modernization of becoming a um uh somebody who is not truly in, an individual but but part of a group somebody who can become lost in a, an environment that's so much bigger than you know uh than 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 one's that looks bigger than one's humanity yes then if you're going to depict that environment depict it in the most extreme way i mean look at i mean again it's it, it's it goes back to silent films look at metropolis and you know metropolis also in the end came down to a pretty simple uh set of ideas but they were it was made vivid because especially at that time it was done in with uh kind of special effects and on an epic scale that hadn't been seen before and by presenting us with something so unique, something so um, alien, something that uh, that takes the normal and and makes it look so strange and so gigantic, um, it, you know, then when you turn around and say even this you could overcome, I I I, I think it is the perfect marriage of of visuals uh, and 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 theme. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean uh, on that. I on that. I think we, I think I think we agree. Like he, like Tati came across with something to say, and he he said the hell out of it. <laughs> Darling, can't you see my signals turn green to red? And with you, I can see a traffic jam straight up ahead. You're just like so hard to get through to you. Uh, it ended up being a little bit of a while for him to make a next film at a tiny fraction of the budget. Um, and in 1971, he made um, uh, Traffic. And he was... Um, and in this point, like, um, Hulo changes changes positions yet again, where he was looking for a job in playtime. Now he actually does have a job. Appears to be a fairly good one, designing designing automobiles, which is um which is interesting, seeing as how in the movie he he has problems getting a straight line drawn through all of his distractions, <laughs> and uh, but he's very very but Hulo shows an amazing amount of intuitive cre- intuitive creativity in in um uh, 
in the in the movie because he literally designs a camping car, a a car which ends up ha- which ends up like uh, having all the all the um uh, faculties of home, and the car company needs to show this uh, car in from in Amsterdam, so they need to go on a they need to go on a trip, and so Hulo it's his uh, Hulo's maybe first road movie, and 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 the and Hulo is above the title. In the uh, in the credits of this movie, it's like Mr. Hulo starring in Traffic, which is something I suspect Tati didn't really want to do because he was trying to get away from Hulo, but now he realized that you know he had to find a way to uh, become more commercially viable, and and unfortunately for for me this this. This this for me is, is Tati's weakest film, and feels a bit compromised. Like Hulo shouldn't necessarily be able to hold down a good job. Everything we know about him <laughs> from the previous films would uh, would indicate that. By, by the way, we haven't mentioned this, but we should note because of the pat the, the the different years he's films. Like we're we're now dealing with an older Hulo. When we started, Hulo was a you know, young guy in his thirties, and and now he, now he's in his sixties, so he's got a little bit of a different vibe. But he's still, you know, an innocent and supposed to be oblivious. But, um, you know, the, the everything that happens in in traffic and traffic is, is probably the most plot uh, oriented of all Tati's films. It's really about how are we going to get this uh, this uh, camping car uh, to the car show in Amsterdam and the uh, what gets in their way and how they're going to come across it. And what just kind of seemed to me was the, such a lost opportunity was every, and, and, and many of the jokes are about what delays them tra- the titular traffic and other yes. things. But Hulo is not really the cause of these problems. And you'd think if you were going to make a Hulo movie with the character we've gotten to know that 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 he really should be causing a lot more mischief than he does. Mm-hmm. It's uh, right. The right they they center upon they center upon like um less like um uh less kind of less giant kind of concerns of like uh of connectivity and kind of a lot more practical ones like dealing on the customs office you know and going out and um just trying to get a tank of, trying to get a tank of gas and um and engaging out engaging out in like a um a traffic jam and i think only in the latter case does like does like does tati really do explore the interesting parts of what does it mean for for traffic, for all these different kinds of cars. I mean, in I, I like the film a little more than you. I, I like the film a little more than you. And actually, part of the reason I do like it is because it does have a little bit more of a progression. But but I do agree with you that having Hugh Lowe be more of the responsible guy, the the more uh, the more of the the more grounded does not quite does not quite work for that. But with the with the automobiles, though. I think the automobiles are a really nice subset of the kind of things he was exploring in playtime of like people compartmentalizing themselves, like hiding out and like not hiding out, but like through the things they build and the things they buy, isolating themselves into like different, um, like different areas that keep them separate. Like, um, he, he does some, to me, he does some really fun things with like the idea of indoors and outdoors. Like in one part, the camping car needs to be stored away, but they use it to camp 
inside a garage. So you have a case of someone living inside a camping car that's outside inside a garage that's outside in the woods. Right. And, and the car itself is, is, is a nice uh, comedic uh, tool because uh, it, it's a camping car in a way that no car could actually be a camping car. You actually cook your food in the grill of the car. <laughs> right. it, it's yes. got all these little James Bondish buttons and, and yes. gadgets that, uh, Electric that create a lot of a uh, comedy. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> And, and, and like there's several points of like, the, there's several points of when the traffic scenes where he's, where he's just basically showing there's what I think it might be one of the more vulgar, uh, tatty to date where he's showing a series of people stuck in traffic who end up showing all the different varieties that you can pick your nose. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and during one part of a rainstorm, like, uh, there's a, a, a pretty fun sequence upon how like, Everybody has their all these different people have all these different cars, but the windshield wipers seem to manage to reflect the people owners of driving them. That might be my favorite scene in the film, the, that windshield wiper scene. So you have a, a little old lady, and the the wiper is just kind of you know slowly trying to make its way, uh, in, 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 you know, in its wiper path. Mm -hmm. And each character has like a different version of that, and and, and it does a good job of uh, uh, people, maybe people who like cars a lot will enjoy this movie more because it is it does kind of fetishize cars a bit yeah it, it, yes yes it does it does a way better job of both it does a way better job of both Cronenberg's crash and in fact uh, the other crash as well of, <laughs> of, of 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 showing like I think as you pointed out a little earlier when our, in our podcast well like Tati kind of really is good at taking objects and and showing the weird kind of purposes that to which that they could be shown. Like in fact, there's an actual Cronenberg, uh, a, uh, a pseudo Cronenbergian kind of sequence where um uh, where uh, Hulo's trying to test out a demo car at an auto show, and it turns out the car has been vivisected and right. it's twisting Hulo <laughs> upside down and around and around, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> um, so there's a so yeah, there was a lot, and and it. And the ending image is, I think, is really very, very cool. A, a eternal, a kind of something that, like, something that the auto show version of a Herzog might have put together, mm -hmm. where, like, there's a, the, a traffic jam that's an eternal parking lot with squares and squares of car hoods, and everyone's kind of looking or trying to pass by with these black umbrellas. So it's kind of like this just total, like, grid-like, this grid-like combination of people and people and autos, and it's it's connecting and disconnecting at the same time. An interesting thing here is happening with uh, the tone and pacing that 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 scene in particular reminds me of, which is which is that it's got the pacing of Mister Hulo's Holiday. Uh, it, it's it's a very there's a lot of space in between the gags. It's pretty deliberative and and in taking its time. Where where in the holiday, I think that made a lot of sense because of the environment. But you know, the environment and traffic is supposed to be a, a hell of a lot more frantic. Yes, and it, it and that doesn't. Uh, that, 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 so that, that, that doesn't happen. So in this case, because, and, and also it, 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 there are a lot of, it just, a lot of things just look great because Tati's got such a, such a great eye 
which, for, which, for detail which and for be, visuals. Which he should be credited because yes. he had a tiny microscopic fraction exactly. of it to be able to and he to make it look as mm-hmm. good in parts that rival playtime is that is astounding that it even comes close. Right. So you have kind of the uh the pacing of the leisurely pacing of an earlier uh Tati with the uh with more of a playtime esque uh visual composition. Yes, there is that. And then I, I, I think I'm 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 very, very much with you with the idea that like while I do like the plot about it, the the, the gags do take a while to manifest themselves, but unlike Unlike uh, Hulot's Holiday, which makes it readily apparent that nothing's going that they're that they're going to have a leisurely time, and you're just going to have to go at their own pace. Here, you're waiting for, hey, will Hulot make it? <laughs> There's a ticking clock, almost like a ticking clock scenario mm-hmm. going on, and you're so you're waiting for what comes next. Like, okay, can you guys like you know stop like gesticulating outside the garage and get to doing something? And so that feel there it gives a tension where it was, it was not as apparent, which didn't make itself manifest in, in earlier Hulos. Yeah. And I also, um, I also want to note that like, he, the thing that it most diminishes for me is he doesn't quite have as many memorable characters or even the quirks of characters to the extent that he had in playtime. There's very few people that are memorable with one exception, which is a, a PR lady who is joining Hulo on his trip. And she seems to kind of overcompensate by changing into more outfits than a like a Jennifer Lopez concert. And uh, and in addition, she kind of takes the role that Barbara did in Playtime, but she goes a little overboard in that pretty much uh, 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 giving um, giving um, a fluttering eyes at at Hugh Lowe for everything he does, no matter how how slight and. And the, you know, and well, like it, the problem is, it it makes no sense for her character to be doing right. that. Now, Barbara in playtime was a kindred spirit to Hulo, so the fact that they formed a bond made all the sense in the world. They that they, they would form a bond. They, but but in traffic, you know, the the the, the, the this uh, PR woman is basically presented as is. You know this all surface uh, with right. her with her little dog and her furs and mm-hmm. and whatnot. Really, the exact kind of person who would hold Hulo in disdain, not the kind of person who would uh, who would be who would form a bond with Hulo. So that just was another example where 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 some of the magic that Tati is usually able to bring together so perfectly just doesn't happen in traffic. Right. That right. That exact person, the PR is not the PR person is not just like the wrong fit for Hulo, but that's the exact kind of job that that like Tati and and Hulo, not Hulo necessarily, but but Tati with her It's the idea that of someone who will put a, a nice sheen on something and cover up humanity with a with a fun press release or right. so on. <laughs> that being said, I do have to acknowledge there's one really, really cool irony about that because Due to her constant changing and constant promotion of Hulo as the character you should care about, because she's almost on his shoulder in various points of the movie. But since this is a movie about someone going to an auto show, it kind of hits me as pretty interesting how she fits the exact purpose of a showroom model ah. <laughs> who's, for whose job it is to, is to through often through multiple costume changes to take the product you presented and make it look good. 
it just so happens in a in a kind of horrible dark IV, <laughs> the product that we're doing is a Hulot movie. Interesting. Okay. So so I don't know if that's I don't know if that's too morbid a way of of, of, of wishing Hulot out. Hulot's Hulot's exit I find is a is well Tati's always had a very kind of nice combination of awkwardness and grace in Hulot's ending. And I find that like I find Hulot's ending is kind of a nice melancholy kind of um but 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 effective um yeah. exit right in, where in, where the scenes leading up to the last scene are more questionable the the very last scene is is well executed yes exactly and i mean and speaking on exits i mean like if if people were to go and say hey then maybe maybe uh, that was the was that the last uh, film jack tatty ever made <laughs> Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> right? And and would that be even the, a whole a wrong thing to say? I mean, maybe not because because the because the last kind of film, and I'm saying kind of deliberately, film that um, Jacques Tati was involved with, um, that was released. And in any case, was a actually a TV TV movie that it was, did have a theatrical release, but it was also released yes, on, for television. And it was yeah. about a um. And it was about a um, Swedish um, circus performance that I believe was not even conceived by Tati, and like they invited him. So um, no, uh, something. Oh, no, no, the, the, I'm the, wrong the, about that. The performance was was I believe entirely conceived by Tati. Okay, and he uh, much of it uh, consisted of bits from his old musical well, days, for sure. Uh, and that 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 he had all that that he had already incorporated into you know an earlier career and was bringing back. Okay, okay, yeah, and. Um, Right, and that that film was um is called Parade out in the nineteen uh, in nineteen seventy four, and it is basically a filmed circus performance with Tati as the ringleader and per, and performing in a whole series of of pantomime based gags, some of which was like some, that he had done as a teenager back in his uh, music hall days. Right, I mean. Whether you're going to enjoy this movie very much kind of depends on how you would appreciate the prospect of actually going to the circus. You know, do you enjoy acrobats? Do you enjoy tumblers? Do you enjoy um, mimes and uh, uh, donkey stunts and various and clowns and and things that you might see in a circus? And And really, if you do... You'll probably enjoy a lot of this, but if all that sounds a little bit not your cup of tea, then then this movie might be a little slow going for you. It is. Um. Um. There was um. Uh. A, a film. Uh. A film where uh, a friend. A friend uh, and I had watched it, and it was for a um. Uh. Like a movie group that had like let you fill out surveys to write your your themes about it or what you felt about the film, and my my friend wrote. Like something that kind of really, unfortunately, applies to parade, might entertain small children or the elderly. (laughs) (laughs) But but there are some exceptions. Being Tati's own bits, I think, are a little bit more entertaining. They're they're, they're pantomime. They're old fashioned pantomime. But he 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 executes them with such skill. Even even. you know, during heading towards the end of his career, um, and you see him uh, mimicking, you know, with, with just his own uh, body and voice, 
um, recreating, you know, a tennis match or a horseback riding sequence or, um, uh, mostly, mostly sporting, uh, or a boxing match. Yes. And again, this, the, we're talking about pantomime here, but we, we are also talking about somebody who, you know, as we've been discussing for the last few hours, uh, has proven himself to be incredibly good at it. Yes. Well, well, yes, he's, he's very good at, he's very good at pantomime. Unfortunately, if you were a fan of Tati's amazing skill of director of direction of 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 visual composition of performance it's not evident here what's evident is the stuff that made him good when he was a young man before he even had a vision of directing and to me it's like to me i think like if you're a little kid and you like that the pantomime and you don't know tati at all it's it's that his stuff is really well done, right? And and truth be told, the pantomime had appeared. Uh, much of his pantomime had appeared earlier in a short uh, he did that he actually filmed on the playtime set called Evening School, mm. where he played a a teacher who basically just used that idea of of demonstrating slapstick as a way to uh create in that short the same pantomime uh material he does uh in the circus performance now i think there is though something that he does interesting in parade um as a filmmaker uh which fits in with his theme of the democratization of uh, comedy, which is he wants, he wants to blur the uh, distinction between performance and audience. So what he's done is put uh, a number of extras and even some performers among the, uh, the regular crowd of the audience watching the circus. So at one point you'll have a, uh, uh, you'll, you, you'll have a fellow, um, say, Hey, I could do a magic trick better than you can and get up and do his own magic trick. Yeah. Another point when they're doing the donkey, um, wrangling stuff, uh, a, a fellow from the audience actually, you know, clearly an, an actor with his wife, also an actor trying to stop him, wants to go and, uh, try to, uh, ride the donkey himself. Um, so. You know, this is this does not make this. Uh, this does not. This idea is not so vital that it it completely makes it, it, a, it a a must see. But it it makes it a little more interesting than it might otherwise have been. Yeah, it leads to the existential question: uh, Is it really valuable to show democratization of the audience and the performers <laughs> if they're both equally bad? <laughs> And and when you say like um uh, when you say like um uh, uh like color color they're certainly very both very very colorful. You're gonna get the heights of like uh of of hippie fashion in both audience and performance on there. And to follow your theme, they they do a little it's it's a little um detail where people are building the sets off to the side as mm -hmm. different acrobats and Tati himself are performing in the ring. So the guests to show you that like, Hey, it takes more of a village to make this whole, to make this whole performance thing. But, but the, um, but the material itself is, is very, very wanting. And, and to have a guy who has shown so much 
so much amazing skill and like and has created such things of like such like titanic levels of creativity to be like reduced to playing both halves of a boxing match is is like it, the more you know about Tati, honestly, I think the more you will find Parade a horribly morbid, depressing experience, kind of like watching Mikhail Baryshnikov uh, do hopscotch for spare change. Oh, I, I can't agree with you on that because mm-hmm. I, I think what, what what Parade shows are things that are close to Tati's heart, and they might not be close to our heart. Um, because, you know, kind of, again, if you, if you look back at the, you know, we live here in the modern world and, you know, uh, maybe, uh, cir- you know, circus performances are not our thing. They're, they're certainly not my thing. But what I think keeps it from being a failure for me is the fact that Tati loves this stuff so much and that, you know, and, and that, you know, it, it, brought him kind of full circle to the way he started his career and let him continue to make, you know, statements, the kind of statements he had been making about the blurring of, you know, there's no such thing as on stage and off stage and, um, and just the enthusiasm, which he, which he, which he did his own bits. It was, it was like seeing, you know, seeing a master at work, even though, it's stuff that he had, you know, been doing for decades. It, 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 it's kind of, for me, more of a, um, a bittersweet closing of his career and, and not quite, not a disaster. I actually prefer it to traffic. Um, mm. but and I, I will describe, by the way, there's a scene near the beginning that really cracks me up. Um, a lot of these hippies have come in on motorcycles and are, uh, wearing motorcycle helmets. And, yeah. uh, one fellow, uh, is, is sitting in the, in the audience with his helmet and the woman behind him taps him on his shoulder. Can you take your helmet off? Uh, I can't see. So he he takes the helmet off to reveal this, uh, giant hippie fro that, uh, (laughs) can blocks her, her, her line of vision even more. And that, that, that's a modest laugh, but, um, it gets to the level of a Muppet show episode. Oh, I'm a fan of the Muppet Show. <laughs> I, I'm, a fan of, I'm a fan of it too. It's, I'm, that's not an excessive. Uh, it's not an excessive slag about it. The excessive slag happens like right now when I point out that I would think I would like you say you don't like it as much as traffic. I, I think I'm no, I like more, it a little more than traffic. I, you like it more than traffic. I I I like uh, I think I like this movie less, and I'm more despondent about it than I am of actual traffic or the drug trade of either traffic movie. Um, like in particular that. Um, that donkey show, as you mentioned, does a disservice actually to actual shows south of the border because what it really, what it lets, what it basically is, spoiler alert, is a, a bunch of people, uh, our formal line, and a donkey runs around in a circle and they try to get on the donkey and all of them fail. <laughs> that is the whole, that is the whole bit. And for five minutes, you get to see what looks to me like the revenge, uh, like a movie directed by the donkey from All Hazard Baltazar. It's his revenge upon humanity by making them look stupid. I have no defense for the donkey show. <laughs> okay. well, cool, fair, fair, fair enough. <laughs> and um, and 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 
And if you, and it's cool that if you liked it, that you found it more, that you were, that it was more of an affectionate look of Hulos. I wish I could feel that way, but ultimately I kind of thought if, if that was an impression that Hulos, sorry, uh, Tati, if that was something that Tati really felt, I kind of would have wanted a little more engagement between him and the other people because Mm. after the introductions, he doesn't really, you know, participate with the younger generation to go and like show that his gags and his routines, you know? Right. He's playing master of ceremonies. He does. Yeah. Well, yes, but the master of ceremonies, the ma- the job of the master of ceremonies is not just to promote themselves, but to also introduce every act and go and like, and go and say, Hey, here's what makes this act special here for your amusement is this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And Tati does not really do that. His efforts are mostly to himself. And it's kind of the impression to me just almost comes across like he was. I'm sorry to put it like that. He was asleep under the rafters and they got him over to like, uh, hey, hey, my God, we have this really great, we have this really great physical comic and he's part of the act, unfortunately. And he, I do not even sense a level of direction for him hmm. in terms of what he's doing in, in terms of that, in terms of that performance. So like, uh, yeah, for me, like it's a really a kind of a very, very sad way for him, for, for him to go out and, um, and, and if you really are a fan of Tati, like, and you want to see Parade, you'll get some really good comedy for it, but then pop in Jure the Fat right after. <laughs> pop, uh, pop in, pop in, uh, Hula, pop in Hula right after. Don't, well, don't have that be the last thing you see of Well, him. as it turns out, there was one more thing, uh, Tati did, uh, hmm. before, uh, he, he was finished. He, um, and he didn't finish the film, but he started the film, which was a, a documentary uh, about a soccer match oh. that is uh, featured. Uh, the Criterion Collection has an amazing collection of everything Tati has done on film and with, with a tremendous amount of extras. This set is just lovingly uh, put together. And, uh, and, and the film... Uh, yeah, it, it, it just just a little like parade is as much focused is more focused on the audience than on what's going on on the soccer field. It's a on uh, one of those underdog stories of a kind of a team that has uh, never won before, uh, you know, getting into a championship game. But it's it it, it it's also been raining, so you get uh, some interesting visuals of uh, of both the the players and the the audience trying to uh, deal with uh, the enth- you know it's a great level of soccer hooligan enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's a short. Uh, it was eventually edited and, and finished by his daughter. Uh, but you know, if you really, if parade is really leaves a bad taste, maybe this will, uh, be a better way to look at you, you Tati like it, going You like out. it more than parade then? No, not really. But remember, oh, okay. I like parade. I, I, I don't have as much, uh, yeah, I don't love parade, but I don't dislike it as much as you do. Yeah. It, you know, the, the way I didn't get a chance to see it because you're completely correct. The criterion has, is an epic set that has literally like, um, over 30 or 40 hours of mm-hmm. extra of extra footage about Tati and his shorts and documentaries and films about him. So I, I did not get a chance to see that film. And so, but it makes me wonder, like maybe he should have, maybe he was just too much of a perfectionist. Maybe he needed to have, which is also so well, interesting. He, he, from a he guy. would take a, you know, seven, eight years to make a film. So that's, that's right. for sure. That's yeah. right. But I just want, yeah, maybe it was not part of his character to go and like, he, he wanted to have things pre-presented just so correctly that, but, but, 
I can totally see if, like, he just had a little half turn of his personality mm -hmm. that in between making playtime, you know, in between, like, breaks in making the film, make a documentary. It was like, maybe it was more expensive to do it back in those days. But a per it seems like a person like him who would be able to, like, get the essence of a per you know, catch the particular detail which makes a person unique or their behavior mm -hmm. notable. It seems like he is a very, he's phenomenally good at that. So maybe giving him like hundred, maybe giving him hundreds of hours of footage, that might have made him like that might have let him uh, like um uh get him more better more results as that worked out as well as this documentary, which like you say it's worth it's worth watching. It's, it's worth definitely catching. it's definitely worth watching. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I mean, yeah, but as that as that closes out, um, uh, I guess then we can go and take a, I guess it's takes a look at like a, a man in his kind of like really really interesting remarkable career. I mean, speaking on documentaries that um like he ends on a documentary but like it like as we've gone through all of his films, like I really really would love to have a documentary about Jacques Tati. Now, I don't know who would be able to do the physical comedy that he did so well or effectively duplicate it, but I find him just like a r amazingly fascinating figure. Right. When you, when you get filmmakers with this level of ambition who meet those ambitions, it's, it's something really special. And, uh, you know, having seen a number of, of Tatis before and always being a fan of, of playtime to see them all collected like this really gives a range of this guy's talent, which which is amazing, mm -hmm. and it has a right, and I mean, and and it has a scope, and there's a scope and drama to the kind of to like just not just the creative outputs of his films, but like, but also to like how like those films and the creativity was like taken away from him. That just I find just so amazingly compelling. It is like I, for one thing, I don't know of any other artist who you can see like almost like as a like a, a pure line in how all these different things like like the red tubing of mon uncle how mm -hmm. everything just how these ideas of of people and groups and society and the look at modernism and and the kind of like humor and uh the humor and and human connection that you can get from all the minor details of how people think and behave and move even well, he knew what he wanted to say from the very beginning. We see in, in Jure Defeat exactly the same thing, themes that we'll see throughout his career, except he'll get more and more tools which, with each film to make these themes more vivid. And because he's from a comedy background, he doesn't forget to entertain. He doesn't forget that, you know, in the end... He's a, he's an old music hall guy who's you know and and somebody who loves clowns and considers himself a clown and uh, and has managed to put himself uh, you know in the pantheon of of the great movie clowns. Well, I think I would maybe it's because I don't like clowns and even fear them a little, but I think it's actually doing him short. He is in the pantheon of great directors. Yes, like and. But but like from such like the, from the, from such unexpected origins, you know, like for for all how people praise Kubrick, but Kubrick was a photographer and made and 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 made like like nonfiction films before he started in 
before he started in his directorial career. He was all about precision and capturing the right image. Whereas, like, Tati's origins were, Tati's origins, like, from, like, you may have had some, some of that came from his past. I believe he was like a picture framer, worked as a picture framer for his father. His family was in the picture framing business, and, uh, I believe it was his grandfather framed, uh, pictures personally for Van Gogh and Toulouse Lautrec. Yeah, that's a, that's a, see, that's a really amazing pedigree. But then what does it mean for a person from that kind of background to be able to have spent so many years, like, in effect, making funny faces and falling down for people? And he makes a career out of that kind of comedy. But then when he gets more tools and gets more avenues for the creativity, he goes for it. He mm. goes so far to like, to literally ha- to an extent that like, to an extent that like, um, he, his city that he, the, the city blocks that he created in playtime were called Tattyville. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine like a Synecdoche, New York scenario where it's actually successful and he gets what his, and he gets his vision. Like a, a triumphant version of that? How, who would have thought? And who would have thought if like, and who would have thought if it was the, um, uh, f- coming from like the, um, uh, <laughs> coming from a, a version of Chevy Chase from the, <laughs> from the, the French ver- or or some uh, or some other equivalent like guy who's only known for pratfalls or only known for like mm-hmm. like physical silly jokes you know now, now to be fair uh, Chaplin did uh, also merge uh, the art of slapstick and 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 theme and art uh, together. But and I think that's true. Tati, but he never made Metropolis. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he never made a film of that kind of scope of Metropolis or Blade Runner with mm-hmm. the kind of thing. You know, like like with Tati, you had a guy who had these comedic ideas, and Cha- you're right, Chaplin was brilliant at applying it to modern times and making societal statements, but never on such an on a pure cinema level. Mm-hmm. I'm, I I don't think like I mean, well, I not on the epic cinema level. That's right, not on the yeah. epic. No, exactly, not on the epic cinema level, and. I mean, and what possesses a guy who had these kind of vaudeville, who had this vaudeville career to go to such a great length to go and like perfect his, perfect the vision? It reminds me, honestly, and I, I will go there to say, I'd love to see the parallel tracks between the life of Tati and overlay the life of Orson Welles. Well, they do have, um, in common, uh, the way they, eventually were abandoned by their respective industries. Mm. Uh, it happened much earlier for Wells. Yes. And, uh, but, but eventually the story was the same, which is that they had to uh, put together low-budget projects yeah. and, uh, and, and do whatever they could with what they had, and, and neither ever gave up. They both yeah. uh, worked until, uh, well, in the case of Tati, just a few years before his death, in the case of Wells, right up to his death. Right, right, right. But, yeah, exactly. That's a very big similarity. But then in the contrast would be, he uh, Wells had his greatest success in his creative endeavors as a very young man, and and Tati built into right. it. So, mm-hmm. so, I mean, so, yeah, it's, it is... I think his story, his story, the idea of a guy from such like, he, his actually almost the story, this is a pretentious way of saying it, I guess, but it's almost like the story of where does creativity come from and what can you do with your creativity? What do you do with your imagination and how you, how can you build it? You know, where does that combine with a person's ambitions? You know, and I think that's a really interesting story and, and, and for, for however, you know, 
for however like the, the system uh, the the system at the beginning of playtime may have ground Tati down but the fact that he was able to carve out a niche and like and and much like the characters at the end of playtime he manages to take that environment and he makes a piece of it of his own indeed and so so whatever happened at the end you can't take that away from him yeah so so yeah, I'm as as um as you guys could tell, we were kind of, you know, it was uh we found a really really rewarding experience like following in on on Tati's life and his films and it's and and like all I would wish is that all I would wish is that more people followed definitely his example of following his creativity and also when he did the physical comedy and his and the gags that he managed to do like you know, there's it's a a uh, scant few amount of people who are like um uh, uh who have unfortunately followed not followed in his footsteps maybe it's maybe that endeavor is really hard to make in especially in filmmaking nowadays but uh but like uh like Brad you there was a couple that you that you picked up on that like uh sort of would be could kind of work as a contemporaries or or associates for well, what the, was there trying was to do. uh there was a uh, assistant of of Tati on Mon Uncle who ended up uh, being one of uh, one of the most prominent uh, French comedians, just uh, short of Tati of, of his time, which is a fellow named Pierre Atex, who uh, also has a box set of uh, films on Criterion. Uh, he is also a physical comedian, very uh, very much in tune with the silent era. And very funny. He, he has less, his thematic interests are not, uh, are not as ambitious as Tatis. So he, he, but what they are are really fun and interesting. He's kind of, his, his thing is, is to kind of say, well, what, uh, what about, you know, the, the, I'm sorry, the, the physic, the, the, Filmmaking itself becomes a subject for him. So in one of his films called Yo-Yo, uh, it, it's, it starts out, uh, in the twenties and it's presented as a fully silent film. Mm-hmm. And then when we move forward 10 years into the thirties, only then does sound come in <laughs> to the picture. And he, he does this again and again, uh, kind of, kind of like, uh, a lot of Iranian new wave films of the nineties would, uh, take nice. us behind the scenes of, and remind us, you know, this is a movie and here's the cameraman and here's the director. Uh, Pierre Atex, uh, did that <laughs> as well. He has three films, uh, that I'd really strongly re- uh, recommend, uh, the suitor, Yo-Yo and uh, Le Grand Amour. Oh, sweet, sweet! It sounds like he's almost like the man of a the man of a movie camera kind of version of the kind of things Tati was doing, whereas Tati was doing more of the Melies like whole worlds. Yes, yes. So that's mm-hmm. super cool to have a like that's yeah. a nice. So contract. you have two French uh, comedians of the fifties uh, and sixties right. to and, enjoy. And to that, I want to add like I want to add myself a a particular a set of uh, French comedians, um, a pair um, uh, named uh, Dominique Abel and. And uh, and Fiona, uh, Fiona Brown, and like they are, um, they've made this whole series of films actually that came out that have come out fairly recently, and they work on a. T- they are aiming for Tati esque kind of physical comedy, just basically and basically like looking at people's behavior and 
and finding how like things can get silly and complicated very, mm-hmm. very fast. Um, and, um, they're, I guess, most well known to an extent. And one I would highly recommend is a film of theirs called Rumba, R-U-M-B-A, where they play a, a two people who work at a, at a, at a grammar school who, in their spare time, do these very intricate and, uh, lovely yet weird and strange and funny and compelling, <laughs> like, rumba dances to win awards. Um, it's, inc- it's incredibly charming, but also deals with, like, some really dark subjects in a kind of, like, in a kind of bl- uh, blackly, darkly humorous way. And, um, it's also mostly silent. Very, very little is said, but they get a lot of great humor out of, out of, uh, behavior. It's a little more pastel, a little more like, um, a kind of enclosed environment than, 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 uh, than Tati's, like, global look at the world, but they managed to make, like, a lot of vibrancy and a lot of great like human commentary out of their out of their films and their most recent one is called like Lost in Paris that just came out I believe a year or so ago and they've also had a film called The Fairy so I would recommend I would recommend those guys but to, now to get back to Tati I think we would behoove us though for a guy we've just touted about his humor for us to just go through like what would be our like top three funniest things that we saw out of Tati. Uh, Red, would you want to go first? Uh, sure. I would uh, I would say that at three would be uh, Mr. Hulo's ho- uh, Holiday. Um, but, but what gag from it? The, ga- the, the gags from it, oh. Um, you know, I did I did mention the, 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 the one from that that just cracks me up is the, uh, the paint can and the tide. Uh, mm-hmm. love, mm-hmm. love, love that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, when you go, then, uh, Jure de Fete, uh, has, has so many of them, but, uh, okay. really, uh, Francois on his bicycle, uh, <laughs> getting into all kinds of, uh, uh, of trouble. Uh, at one point he got, this is a great gag. He goes into a church and uh there's a, a giant uh, church bell that he has to ring <laughs> and the church bell um lifts him up with him and at first it does this to the priest then he hands the rope uh to to, to uh Francois after he gives him the package yep. and he goes up mm-hmm. and then just a random woman comes in and she ends up going up too <laughs> uh and and then you know the number one thing uh really has to be, has to be playtime. It just, uh, has to be. And, uh, and I, I, I might stick with the doorman gags on this, though, though, those might be the ones I laughed the most at. It's, it's amazing the different variations that this guy is doing to dedicate himself to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to his job, you know? <laughs> like, how, my, mm-hmm. uh, my three would be, my three would be in, uh, it, it would be like, there's a scene in Jure the Fet where he's, He's already in his mission to go and deliver all these letters. And he goes and, uh, and he goes to one guy who's acting kind of morose. Like, here, buddy, here's a letter. Here's a letter. And like, a guy's just very slowly taking letters and just finally shoves it on his leg. Goes, I don't know what's the matter with these guys. You know, I just try to give, I just try to do my job and they, and they, and they are, um, uh, and uh, they don't give me any sort of, uh, like, gratif- you know, they don't give me any sort of, like, gratitude in there. And he, as he leaves, he closes the door and you see it's a funeral. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they were, he's trying to mourn his dead relative. If, but but damn it, Francois needs to get his letter. <laughs> like <coughs> my second would be a recurring gag at the end of playtime, which is um there is a waiter who is used as a human mannequin <laughs> as different. He first like a person uh, like finds that his pants or his tie is missing or something, and so he gives him his tie. Then he finds his pants are ripped, and so he gives him his pants. And eventually, the poor guy is just left 
almost out in the cold as like every bit of him is just being put into use for a bit of clothing is being to use for six other people. <laughs> and, and my ultimate favorite, um, <laughs> is actually comes from traffic. Uh, we had mentioned that like the, that, um, Hulo's assistant is a PR person who has, is like a, looks like a fashion plate and also has a nice fashionably shaggy dog. Part halfway through the movie, these incredibly, the most evil hippies this side of Charles Manson <laughs> decide it's going to be a fun idea to like, um, to take the, to take the dog, take the dog's leash, put it on this fuzzy, fuzzy vest that one of them is wearing and put a little, some dots to make it look at the eyes and put it right under the back tire of a car. <laughs> now, when the lady discovers this though, it leads to this really great sequence because first off, she's almost Tati's equal in like how she's comedically pulling this piece of cloth to, and it looks so effectively like the dog's head is snapping back and forth. But then Hulo, uh, then Hulo comes back and he actually, gra- and he takes this and he just thinks it's a piece of cloth. A piece of shaggy cloth, but he doesn't realize that she thinks it's the dog. So as he attempts to like wave it at her and tries to wear it, she's more and more freaked out. Right. <laughs> so this weird, wonderful bit of double comedy is both people are really misrepresenting what the other, what the other is doing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and from, and from those, from those films, especially on playtime. There's much more of like this, uh, like this, uh, of this kind of comedy. If you just go, t- uh, set yourself in front and, and, and give it, and give it some solid, give it some solid attention that th- this kind of stuff just blooms in on, on Tati's, on Tati's best work. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, thanks for, so, uh, thanks for you guys for listening and, um, and for, um, uh, for emails and, uh, and comments and advice and criticism. Um, uh, we the, reach us at Brad, the directors, uh, no, not the, just directors club podcast at gmail.com. That's right. Not the, not the directors podcast, comma the, but directors right. podcast, uh, <laughs> at gmail.com. Uh, yes. And, uh, and if you like what we, if you like what uh, you heard today, uh, um, uh, feel free to check out of the, the site and over on iTunes where, there's uh, been 120 plus such episodes uh, talking about all sorts of di- all sorts of directors, and we hope you get to um, enjoy some of those and the, some of the other uh, great shows over on the Now Play Network, out including like for Popcorn Soccer, uh, Popcorn Supper, I mean, uh, the um, Pure Cinema Podcast that we've just that have just been a, a new addition, and um, and once again we like and we'd like to extend our thanks to. Um, uh, Jason Petrovsky once again for his donation. Th- uh, thanks again, Jason, and a an extra shout out out for um, Rebecca Martin of the Fresh Perspective podcast for a for a generous donation of some equipment. We could have still made this recording, but without the, without this uh, nice loan, we would have had to do some tatty esque gymnastics <laughs> in order to give this uh, in order to get the recording its due. <laughs> So, uh, so uh, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, hope to catch you in uh, uh, two weeks for the next uh, edition out for Directors Club. Till so next, next time. time.